Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. God damn it. I've spent all day cleaning the house, wiping everything right. down, dusting, vacuuming. Hard life, yeah. And now I come in here to record, and there's just giant red splattered all over the wall and my laptop screen. Uh, Welcome home, Shelby. What the fuck is this? Shelby, did you do this? Is this like a prank? What are you doing? No, I-, I was going to ask you if you did this. This is a really mean prank. This isn't funny. Look, I got to clean this shit up. And this is not great for us recording. Derek, did you do this? Derek, do Own this. up, bro. Is this some weird practical joke you pulled? Give it a taste. See how it tastes. <laughs> <laughs> mm, it's ketchup. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch or Dare, horror movie podcast hosted by Movie Monster Boy Aaron and me, the Craven co-host Derek, uh, which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Once again, back from us trashing Neon Demon. <laughs> Although I will say, I think I went to bat for that movie more than you two did. Yeah. Shelby Scott. Yay. The excellent podcast, Scary to Sleep. Hi, everyone. That was two in a row. Actually, it was from bashing Neon Demon on the tail end of bashing the taking of Deborah Logan. And I apologize. I do like horror movies. Yeah, we, <laughs> we joked about this. Like, have you faced any backlash of people being like, do you actually like horror? You know, I haven't, but I'm surprised I haven't because I felt bad. And I even told you, I was like, that is just so weird. I'm, I'm really not a really heavy critic of things. And it was just two in a row. It was probably the only two that I would feel that strongly about. Well, we're going to rectify that today because we specifically asked you for a title that you enjoy. (laughs) And uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. So I'm excited. Yeah, because Aaron even mentioned you have the wildest choices for horror movies sometimes. And I love it because it's stuff that we wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. And Frankly, your pick kind of dictated our current run right now that we're doing. So for our listeners, last episode, we did the original 1963, The Haunting, based off of the Shirley Jackson book, The Haunting of Hill House. This week, we're doing the 1999, The Haunting. Heck yeah. And for those of you on our Patreon, we'll have had two Patreon episodes now, one discussing the book uh, with Heather Gunnell, and then part one, which covers the first five episodes of the Mike Flanagan Netflix show, The Haunting of Hill House, with your mom, actually, Aaron. And then uh, coming up next on Patreon is part two, where we finish the last five episodes of the Mike Flanagan show. So it has kind of unofficially been us exploring Hill House for the better part of a month now. 
Well, I'm happy to have influenced so much content. Yes. You bringing up 1999 <laughs> The Haunting. With one random pick from the end of the millennium. Yeah. We decided to do kind of like an unofficial part one and part two. Part one being the original, part two being this wild 99 remake, and then uh, the show. We've talked about this a lot with other guests because people have been like, yo, I want to do this movie or this movie. And I'm thinking, we haven't covered the original of that yet. I don't want to just jump into doing like Friday the 13th 4 when we haven't even done the first movie yet, right? For sure. Kelly's chomping at the bit to do Candyman, but I was like, we haven't done the old one yet. Well, I want to do that one too. Okay, fine. We'll do yeah. both, but we haven't done the old Candyman yet, right? Yeah. So this was a great opportunity to like step back into something older that we, you know, would have covered eventually, but that was a very fun episode to do research on and talk about. Same thing with this one worked out perfectly so yeah this is gonna be fun conversation awesome yeah i'm honestly surprised there isn't i don't know a remake of this specific version yet i don't know why oh we'll get into that long enough yeah yeah Yeah. might have it but yeah like usual for our returning listeners you know the drill we're gonna get into our recommendation section where we recommend other horror media that's different than the movie we're covering today be it other movies tv books comics video games etc Guess usually goes first, Shelby, but uh, you said you didn't have anything prepped. I mean, you're welcome to bring up anything you've even recently seen or or whatever, but... I didn't. I'm sorry, you guys. I totally forgot about that section. And since I, I know since I'm a returning guest, they're very good about like when you're a new guest being like, here's all the things we do. So be prepared. And I, I dropped the well, ball as a returning guest to remember. I dropped the ball not reminding you either. <laughs> so. Yeah, but... I love recommending things too. So no, sorry. So I will say I remember you posting either from the scary to sleep or your personal Twitter, how much you loved talk to me. And you went to the premiere of that, I think, right? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Talk to me was fantastic. If you haven't seen it yet, I got to go to a screening with Raka Raka, the two directors, which they don't go by Raka Raka when they're directing, they go by their big boy names, but it was incredible. I mean, I think it's one of the most original movies I've seen in a yeah. long time. It was actually terrifying. It was actually something I sat with and I thought about for days. It was funny because as we were sitting there, my friend who I brought to this screening and everything, I turned to her and I was like, oh, they're going to do a sequel. Yeah. Sure enough, a couple of weeks after it actually came out, because I, I saw it, I think, a week or so before it came out, they announced a sequel, which it does lend to a sequel. But it was just so refreshing to watch a horror movie where I didn't know what was going to happen. And I feel like things have gotten a little formulaic these days. I don't know. There's just so much you can do with so many tropes. And this one took a lot of tropes that we've Mm -hmm. seen before, you know, like a haunted object and teenagers and all those tropes we love and actually turned it on its head to be what's going to happen. Who's the villain? What is the villain? Like, it was just a really interesting look into human nature, but not really. It was just incredible. Yeah. Heather and I really enjoyed it when we saw it. Yeah. And I brought that up, too, because actually our last episode on the original haunting. Aaron had just seen it and recommended it, so I figured you would have some more insight on it. But that is one of those movies that I really want to get around to watching once it hits streaming. Being a new dad, I just can't get out to theaters these days. I gave Aaron a little bit of shit for not getting this, but they're putting out an edition, like a limited edition for the 4K, where it comes with the porcelain hand. Yeah. And I I was pushing Aaron to like go ahead and pre-order that, because I feel like that'd be a fun horror movie prop to have around your house i have most of my movies still packed 
and like in a room that we're using as a storage room. I don't have anywhere to put my movies, let alone put a fucking porcelain hand. <laughs> it's so funny. That was another thing my friend and I said once it was over. I was like, oh, well, A24 is going to be selling that thing. Uh-huh. I can guarantee it. And I will not be buying it because it really hit my superstitious brain of, I don't need to have that yeah. in my house. The one that's being made is from Umbrella, which is a Aussie distributor. But it's blank. Mm-hmm. And it comes with Sharpies, so you can, like, write your own nope. shit on it. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun project, yeah. It's a little craft you can do with your friends, yeah. Which is so funny because that in itself lends to, the movie is just so, uh, it's one of those movies where you can see it, it insane as it is paranormal-wise, you can see it happening. Mm-hmm. Like, these kids just felt like kids, and, like, they felt like your friends growing up. I think that's one reason it got to me, too, is the house parties were so recognizable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, that one was a lot of fun. Can't wait to check it out again. It's an ultimate lesson in peer pressure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, Aaron, what you brought up last week, it's basically the ring for Gen Z, a movie like that where there's a, some kind of cursed object and it turns into mm-hmm. kind of an urban legend between teenagers of the time. That's what also fascinates me about it because just the imagery of the porcelain hand itself is so eerie and weird. Mm-hmm. I'm just insanely curious about the movie itself. Yeah, that was good. Cool. But uh, Aaron, what have you got this week? I've got three movies real quick. First one, and these are also probably things Shelby has seen. I finally caught up with The Boogeyman, which came out earlier this summer. Definitely seen that several times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all just in your head. What is this supposed to be? It's the thing that comes for your kids when you're not paying attention. Dad, you have to listen to me. Okay. I'm listening. (laughs) Sweetheart, let me handle it. This is directed by Rob Savage, who did Host, which was a big breakout COVID movie. Fantastic. This is based on a Stephen King short story from the Night Shift collection. Oh, I was about to ask if it was the same story. It is. It is. They sponsored my show, so I'm very excited to talk about Boogeyman. Hell yeah. (laughs) It was adapted by Scott Beck and Brian Woods, the guys who wrote A Quiet Place. Then it went DOA after the Disney-Fox merger. Mark Heyman, who wrote Black Swan, took a pass, and it kind of got back on its feet. It was originally meant to be a Hulu movie, but it tested so well that they actually said, fuck it, let's do it theatrical. Nice. They shot in New Orleans for most of it, which there are definitely some recognizable spots there. There are. I always love when they do that. They don't bring it to attention that it's New Orleans, but then I yeah. recognize streets and, and movie shots. Yeah, they were definitely going for, this is a town. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you can tell, yeah. But yeah, this stars Sophie Thatcher, 
from Book of Boba Fett, Yellow Jackets, Prospect. She and her younger sister, Vivian Lyra Blair, she was one of the kids in Bird Box. She's baby Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi. They have recently lost their mother, their dad, who is a psychologist played by Chris Messina from, of course, Rounders, Six Feet Under, Maid of Honor. He is still dealing with it, right? They're all still dealing with that trauma. And if you're familiar with the original story, he's they basically flipped it around and we're seeing it from the psychologist's perspective. Yes. Whereas in the, the original story, it's the other way around. Yes. Um, and that's kind of what's fun is the original nugget of the short story is just a disturbed guy goes to see a psychologist, mm-hmm. tells him, hey, my family's all fucking dead, and this thing called the Boogeyman got them. And you're kind of left wondering, was it just this disturbed guy who just murdered his entire family, or was it actually something supernatural? And he's a terrible person. Stephen King really hammers that in. Like, he's a very bad person. So he seems like someone who might murder his family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That guy in question is played by David Desmalchian, who has been fucking all over the place this year. He's been blowing up lately. Yeah. Of course, he's in The Dark Knight. That was where people first noticed him. He's in Prisoners, the Ant-Man movies, Blade Runner 2049. He's also in Bird Box. And then just the last few years, The Suicide Squad, Dune, Oppenheimer. He's got another movie coming out this year called Late Night with the Devil that I really want to check out. And we've mentioned him on the show, too, because he is the writer of the comic series Count Crowley. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he is the guy that comes in and is like, "Uh, my entire family's dead. This thing got him, right? And so this weird, cursed, dark creature thing that kind of preys on your fears and your trauma and the darkness and everything kind of transmutes itself to this new family. Great fucking atmosphere. I really, really dug the mood and the vibe and the look of this movie. I love how they did the creature. I do too. Now, I wish there was more practical something to the creature. The CGI is the downside to it, right? I agree. And I've listened to interviews where Rob Savage was like, we did not have time or money to do anything practical, so it is all digital, which I get. But that's if I'm going to knock it for anything, it's going to be that. But I like the way that he chose to do it. And listening to an interview, he was literally talking about, we broke down frame by frame how many frames you actually see the shark in Jaws and the xenomorph in the first alien. And we were aiming for like Mm -hmm. that amount of screen time or less. And for the most part, you really don't ever fully see the creature in full and lit. So the CGI Mm -hmm. works enough, but the moments where you just see very small hints of it in the darkness, like you see it's glowing kind of eyes, like a cat. And the way it moves in the darkness. Yeah, because it's all jangly and bent up and has weird limbs and shit. It's like a crooked man. That's exactly what I thought of when I first saw it. Crooked man a lot, yeah. The way that they choose to kind of show that is just, it's that it works, jerky. despite it being a lot of CGI. But the performances in this are very good. And Vivian Lyra Blair is one of the best child actors right now. She's so fucking good. She truly is. And she's not irritating. She's never overacting. She's never playing it too cutesy. Like, it works so, so well. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I would love to see if this gets some kind of follow-up too, just to kind of expand on the short story. I know Rob Savage said recently in an interview that he is working with Stephen King on something else. 
So I would love to see what that is. Yes. But yeah, definitely enjoyed it. Can't wait to check it out again. That is, again, The Boogeyman. I got to go to a screening of that, too, and Rob Savage was there. Hell yeah. I've had a very fortunate year when it comes That's to That's awesome. Yeah. It was with Disney who made the entire thing. With It was like all these experiences. They put the vine things on the walls. Oh, cool. It was really creepy to just be there, just yeah. be there. And yeah, Rob Savage said like one of his goals is to get his movies on that list where it's scientifically proven that this is a scary movie. <laughs> There's only a few movies on this list. I think Host is on it. I want to say Dashcam might also be on it, which is another of his that I think was very underrated. A lot of people really hated it, but I loved it. We just brought this up on our Sinister episode. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Sinister was like for it. <laughs> the number one or two movie every year and Host was like right behind yeah. it. So yeah, I'm curious to yeah, see, fuck you, does, Aaron. does this one jump on the list for this year? It's a legitimate list. Fuck you, Aaron. Look, it's going to become a more legitimate list as time goes on and they figure out more nuanced ways to measure it other than just your heart rate and how much you're paying attention. But uh, I do love that he was yeah. like, this thing went viral. It's buzzworthy, this list and this whole notion of scariest movies. So yeah, good oh, yeah. on him for like shooting for that easy target. Does this mean since Disney put on that event, Shelby? That the Boogeyman is technically a Disney prince? Yeah. I think yeah. so. I, I definitely think so. Oh, and a really quick plug. Uh, they sponsored one of my episodes, and I got to work with the studios in writing an original Boogeyman story from the world that is technically canon. Hell yeah. And so if you look for my The Scary to Sleep Boogeyman episode, it is actually, I'm pretty sure, considered canon episode from the Boogeyman universe. So I am going to pull yeah. it up right now. That's great. Yeah, it was really fun to write too. Confession, a tale of the Boogeyman yes. is the name of the episode from Scary to Sleep. So mentioned earlier, my mom was in town to visit us finally. The day she got into town, we actually had plans to go see The Last Voyage of the Demeter with some of our new friends up here. So we all went to go see that as a group. Something ripped apart the animals. All the livestock. This looks like a bite. Search the ship. Everywhere. Evil is on board. Powerful evil. This was directed by Andre Overdahl, who did Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is easily my favorite of his movies. Fucking oh, so scary. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of a fun one that has been in development hell for 20, 30 years. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. This is one that people have been throwing around for a long time. This version is written by Zach Olkowitz, who did the second Fear Street movie. And Braggy Shoot, who did the Escape Room movies. But to give you an idea how long this has been in development hell, these are the other directors who were attached at various times. Robert Schwenke, who did Flight Plan. Marcus Nispel, who did the Texas Chainsaw 2003 remake. Uh, oh, wow. Stefan Ruzowitzki, who did Cold Hell. David Slade, who did 30 Days of Night. And Neil Marshall, who did The Descent. All these people have been attached over the last... 20 years. Whoa. Neil Marshall would have been interesting. David Slade would have been interesting too. So there's a lot of yeah. what ifs, but this is finally like the permutation of this that got made. And uh, it was fun. You know, I don't know really what the hate is. This is not meant to be anything super serious or heavy. It's just a very fun, splashy, 
I don't know. I think it's very well-made studio horror movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I haven't gotten to see it, but I love the idea of movies like that where they take place in a universe we're all so familiar yeah. with. So we kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. We know the ending. But And that's one of the dumb criticisms there, you know? I've seen. Because yeah. the movie does start with a little bit of a text thread. And one of the things it says okay. is, this account is pulled from the captain's logs, detailed in Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. Right? So it tells you right off the bat what this is. The title alone tells you what it is. Yeah. The Last Voyage. Exactly, yeah. right? So this is the ship that took Dracula and all of his crates of dirt and shit from Transylvania to England. And in the book Bram Stoker's Dracula, it just washes up derelict. Everybody on board is kind of missing. Oh, well, let's empty all the shit out of here and bring it to Carfax Abbey, right? So it's the, like, what happened in that situation. But one of the dumb criticisms I've heard is, I just wish that, like, they hadn't told us right off the bat this was, like, about Dracula, because, like, then we know what's happening. What? If, if you're familiar with the original at all, like... All of it. All of it. Well, we know the whole thing's gonna go bad, and everybody's probably gonna die. Yeah, no shit, it's called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a dumb criticism I've heard. Yeah, like I said, I don't know. There's something about that that I enjoy. I don't know. There's something that I, I find enjoyable about that. I can see why whoever first had this idea, like you said, I guess 20 or 30 years ago, was like, what happened? Yeah. We only know like, it showed up. We see the little news article. Like, we know, you know, but what yeah. happened? We want to see what happened. And I get that. Yeah. I love that idea. I love the concept. One of the original guys who wrote like an early version of this story he literally saw the model of the ship that they used in Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula oh. because he was friends with like the model maker guy who made that model. And then he was like, okay, what happened to all this, right? So no, it's a great idea. Mm -hmm. And I don't get the criticism of like, I just wish that we had not known it was Dracula from the beginning. Really? Okay. This is a book that's been around for over 100 years that they literally teach in high school. Exactly. Sure. Okay. Sounds good. So yeah, this version has Corey Hawkins from Straight Outta Compton, Kong Skull Island, Black Klansman, David Desmalchian, again, to bring him right back up. He's kind of the like first mate. I forgot he was in that too. <laughs> he must have gotten a new agent or something that is just Yo, yeah. making all the calls. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Go forth. Yeah. yeah. The captain is played by Liam Cunningham from Dog Soldiers, which we have covered on the show. Hell yeah. And Game of Thrones. Most people know him from that. He's the Onion Knight Davos. That's right. Go back and listen to our episode on Dog Soldiers and that season of Spoop All About Werewolves because Dog Soldiers, yeah. to this day, is still my favorite werewolf movie. Hell yeah. His little grandson is on the boat with them, played by Woody Norman, who I just mentioned last episode because he is in Cobweb that also just came out. Oh, yeah. They find in one of the crates this girl in the dirt, played by Aisling Francoisi. She was also in Game of Thrones and she's in The Nightingale Directed by Jennifer Kent, who did The Babadook, which we've also covered. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes this whole, like, something's picking off the crew. What's going on? You know, it goes from there. It's fun. There's a lot of spoopy atmosphere to it. The Dracula creature. This is very much a creature version of Dracula because he is in his weird hibernation state. Is really cool and a lot of fun. Yeah, I was almost sad they showed him in the trailer just because I was like, that's a fucking cool Dracula. Yeah. I almost wanted to be surprised by it. but. I get it, because he does look super yeah. cool, so I'd put him in the trailer, too. I yeah, think. front and center of all the marketing, same. I get it. That's one thing. I agree. Mm -hmm. I wish we had just seen, like, glimpses of it in the trailer, maybe, because he is a cool design. Mm -hmm. 
Um, again, not really that practical. I have a feeling that there's some practical stuff going on, and maybe it's just augmented by CGI, I'm not sure. But Javier Batet is doing the performance capture, and he's one of those super tall, thin guys like Doug Jones, who does a lot of creature stuff. He's the like weird ghoul in Record. He's in Crimson Peak, The Other Side of the Door, The Conjuring 2, It, His House. I mean, he's a contortionist. He does all kinds of crazy shit. He's given a great performance as Dracula in this. But yeah, I don't know. We had a lot of fun. It is not the most deep movie in the world. It does not make mm-hmm. you rethink your life choices and how you feel about the state of the universe or anything. It is a fun, popcorny, dorkula movie. It was great. Loved it. So that was a lot of fun. That'll probably be coming out on digital very soon for you to check out. Last thing I want to mention, this is a tangentially horror option, but I'll explain why in a second. Happen to see this kind of come across streaming? Poster looked intriguing. What the hell is this? This is God is a Bullet that just came out this year. I think I know who took your daughter. She was in a cult, for Christ's sake. You really think this person is trustworthy? I lost my wife. I lost my daughter. Forget about the authorities tracking your daughter down. If you want her back, you got to get her yourself. You really shouldn't be following us, man. Stupid. Now you're going to show the ladies some respect. They bring children here. In the end, they're killed. They keep some like me. You're crossing over. You better watch yourself. I've tasted a lot of blood lately. I'm not sure I got a full stomach yet. Dad, kill them. Kill all of them. I am my freedom. I wear it. Take a look. This is God. This is directed by Nick Cassavetes. Yes, that Cassavetes, the son of John and Gina Rollins, star in Mask, Black Moon Rising, The Wraith, Face Off, Hangover Part 2. He directed John Q, The Notebook. The Notebook, famously. Alpha Dog, The Other Woman. Lots of weird, popcorn-y, very popular movies from the 2000s. He directs this movie that I will say, this is The Sound of Freedom but directed by David Ayer of Suicide Squad fame. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) This is based on a book by this author named Boston Terran. The gist of it is there is a, like, Satanist cult that is kidnapping children. (laughs) Always. And they're, like, selling kids on the black market. Sometimes the kids end up becoming one of their family or whatever. So this sheriff, played by Nicolaj Coster-Waldo, again, from Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister. Game of Thrones. He is this good Christian upstanding sheriffman, and his daughter gets snatched. His ex-wife and, like, her new husband get brutally murdered in their house, and his teenage daughter gets kidnapped by this crazy Satanist gang. And this other troubled youth 
that they kind of go to for like, hey, does any of this look familiar? Can you tell the us fuck, about like man. what's going on in this house? <laughs> what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> I almost wish you guys played video for your podcast so you could see both Derek and I's face <laughs> as you're describing this. Like, so your listeners could see the faces. Oh, this is totally a like, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> so this other troubled youth, turns out uh-huh. she was also snatched when she was a kid by the same Satanist cult. And she, like, oh, wow. escaped, right? What a small world. Played by Micah yeah. Monroe, one of the new Scream Queens, who was in It Follows, and the guest, Watcher, Significant Other. She's been a lot of good stuff over the last few years. So it's basically the two of them teaming up and saying, fuck it, we gotta go outside the, like, normal channels of the law to, like, go get your teenage daughter back from this cult of Satanists. Jamie Foxx is in this movie. What? As what? the ferryman. Why? And, and the reason why I say this was directed by David Ayer, jokingly, is everybody in this Satanist cult is dirty and covered in tattoos. And the entire movie is really, really three edgy five me, bro. It's very, <laughs> we're going to have all this brutal shit happening, but we're going to play like David Bowie over this scene, ironically. Like it's that kind of weird vibe. So it's also a Zack Snyder movie too. <laughs> a little bit, yes. So Jamie Foxx plays this character called the Ferryman. Okay. Covered in tattoos. He has vitiglio and he has uh-huh. a amputated arm that has like a claw hook. And he's constantly spouting philosophy and all this left-hand path magic bullshit. Whatever. He, like, gets them guns. He's also a producer on this movie, by the way. Good for him. So this Satanist cult is made up of Carl Glusman from Neon Demon, who we discussed with you, Shelby, earlier. Yeah. Jonathan Tucker from Sleepers, The Virgin Suicides, also the Texas Chainsaw 2003 remake, The Ruins, Westworld. I recognize Jonathan Tucker here. Yeah. And Ethan Suppley. Oh, I haven't heard his name in a long time. Who is in Mallrats, Chasing Amy, American History X, My Name is Earl, Remember the Titans. He's been in a shit ton of stuff. Twin Peaks. And he was just in The Quarry recently, the video game that I've mentioned a few times. Yeah. So it's like all of these dudes, also like Nick Cassavetti's daughter, and they're all just covered in these bullshit MS-13 Satanist tattoos. And they're just murdering people willy-nilly in the most weird, like, Manson murder kind of ways. There's this whole subplot, too, with January Jones from Mad Men. And, like, her and her husband are also caught up in all this kidnapping plot and all this weird shit. This movie is two and a half hours long. What? (laughs) I shit you not. It has all these insane needle drops from, like, David Bowie, Bob Dylan. Jane's Addiction, there's all these crazy songs in this. Who is this made for? That's what I'm saying. Where did this movie come from? What the fuck? Did Nick Cassavetes self-finance this? Either way, it is trying way too hard to be edgy into the, like, serial killer Manson. Again, this is left-hand path magic bro kind of fucked up Satan cult. But it also dips into the weird right-wing vigilante, like, I'm gonna go get my daughter back, you fucking Q-scum. That kind of weird (laughs) bullshit. It's so fucking bananas, because there's this whole thing back and forth between the, like, sheriff guy and Micah Monroe about their faith and what they believe and just all this philosophical bullshit. But then there's nothing but nonstop Rambo (laughs) 4-level violence 
and CGI blood oh and God. dismemberment and people being stabbed Holy and shit. rattlesnakes attacking people, people getting their fucking jaws blown off. It's just this insane violence mixed with all this 13-year-old's view of philosophy and religion, man. <laughs> it's bug nuts. It's truly like a weird, what the fuck, how did this get made kind of thing. Again, I'm bringing this up as a like qualified, watch this if you want to watch something that is truly a bananas, how did this get made, like singular vision of Nick Cassavetes, right? And this cast is honestly pretty good. Despite the bullshit that they're doing and saying in the movie, <laughs> everybody in this movie is actually pretty good. Micah Monroe fucking rocks in this movie, covered in tattoos, wearing tiny little round glasses, carrying giant shotguns, blasting people's kneecaps out. She fucking rocks in this. Yeah, I believe it because she's so good in everything yeah. else that I've seen her in. And this is a complete oh, weird left turn from her, from everything she's done in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously this movie's a mess, as I've described, but it's at least I don't know. I can't think of anything I've seen like this recently that was at least, oh, you tried for something. You were going for something pretty fucking yeah. hard in this. So, yeah, that is God is a Bullet <laughs> from 2023, directed by Nick Cassavetes of The Notebook fame. So I will say there were three production companies attached to this movie. Lord. Uh, the one that's top billed is a production company called Patriot Pictures. So. I saw that. Oh, God, really? Okay. Yep. <laughs> this definitely has red box all over it. Yeah. There's only two pieces of trivia, and one of them is criticizing Ethan Suppley. It was like... Ethan Suppley plays someone who's in a cult in this movie, when in reality, he's also in a cult. <laughs> Scientology. <laughs> oh, is he in Scientology? I was like, what cult is okay. Yeah, that, whatever. It's clearly brought out whoever's making these trivia, like, this is their audience, is people like this. People with conspiracy <laughs> maps all over their walls, yeah. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit, this movie sounds ridiculous. And that's the thing, too, is if you told me this movie was a thousand percent dead serious, <laughs> there are cults of satanists that are out there to kidnap your kids i would believe that like okay yeah they made this movie in complete earnestness but there's also that part of me that's like this is 1000 percent a satire and all the q shit i would believe that too so i can't tell you know like <laughs> what is this fucking movie because it is just that kind of ridiculous but Anyway, yeah, cool. That is it for my recommendations. <laughs> oh, man. Derek, on to you. Awesome. I'm about to bring the energy really down, so thank you for doing that. That was wild. Yeah. Uh, so I went into this episode with multiple recommendations. I've actually had a lot of stuff now that I've, I've saved up, and I was actually excited to share some of it with both of you specifically. But life, fate, random chance, whatever you want to call it, sure. had other ideas. I sat down to kind of write out my recommendation section of this episode. And I had so much, I was wondering, like, should I just turn this into a Patreon exclusive where I'm the only one recording it or I'm just explaining it to Aaron? But I think it's such a personal, important subject to me that I want to share it with our audience at large. And we don't have nearly as many Patreon subscribers as our greater audience. So bear with me, y'all, because this is kind of a long recommendation section. It's kind of one that's sort of for me. But I am sure there are a lot of you who will either go check out this person's work or already are fans, or maybe you'll you'll hear something that's interesting. So a couple weeks ago, on August 24th, Wyndham Rotunda, better known as the wrestler Bray Wyatt in WWE, unexpectedly passed away. He was only 36 years old. 
Hey, you want to say something really scary? <laughs> we live in a world where society has poisoned the souls of men. It hovers over them like a dark cloud and they can't do anything about it because they're just a regular everyday working class. People like me, like me, they get down on their hands and knees and they whisper these little lies and secrets into their ears. But I have a secret of my own. And what are you gonna, what are you do, gonna do when they decide it's time? We are the ones. When they start to walk upright. The ones you've been told about. And we are walking upright. What are you gonna do? Well, I know what you're gonna do. Run. You're gonna tell them we're coming. Run. Now send us someone. Just don't send anyone you want back. Witness the new face of fear. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. <laughs> We're coming. He died suddenly of a heart attack, which was exacerbated by a severe case of COVID that he had been battling for who knows how long, because like he's been out of action for months at that point. And he was in the middle of training to return to the ring, actually, when this happened. but. They're saying that that bout of severe COVID, again, it's one of those weird new variants that causes long COVID, exacerbated a, a family heart condition that he had, which caused him to have a heart attack at 36 years old. Bear with me, I'm trying to get through this without crying. He left behind his wife, Jojo, and four children, all of whom are pretty young. The reason why I bring this up under recommendations is because he was a horror character, horror icon. He was a horror fan. He was one of us. And let me kind of explain to you what the character Bray Wyatt was before I get into recommending some of his work. The original Bray Wyatt character was a supernatural cult leader that was part wrestler Jake the Snake Roberts. He was part Max Caddy from Papa Scorsese's Cape Fear. He was part <laughs> Lord Summer Isle from The Wicker Man. He was part Manson. He was part all these other famous, infamous, fictional, and real-life cult leaders. He was super charming and other times absolutely terrifying. His promos, sometimes done in a wooden rocking chair, oftentimes done in complete darkness, were captivating, creepy, and often the stories and nightmares, or they were twisted elegies that he was reciting to his flock. His taunts in the ring included hanging upside down from the ring corner like he's a Japanese ghost, or exorcist spider walking across the ring while his opponent's down on the ground. All the more unnatural, given how big of a person he was, he was just a husky guy and his speed in the ring was also kind of unnatural and surprising given his size his first major character change was this weird duality between his good side and his good side was this mr rogers-esque character who led a children's show called the firefly funhouse in which he would do these video vignettes that would devolve into like what if peewee's playhouse became even more demented and was produced by like mid 2010s Adult Swim. This was right around the time that you introduced me to him. And yeah. I think you maybe first brought him up on our show in a previous episode. Yes. And then his evil side, which was kind of slowly revealed through these vignettes, was the fiend. And the fiend was this demonic, unstoppable beast, alter ego. And he wore a mask that was actually designed by horror icon Tom Savini and Tom Savini's makeup partner, Jason Baker, both. Very well-known names in horror movies and horror makeup and costuming. On his very last return at the end of tail end of last year, and he came back as his quote-unquote real-life self, 
that slowly devolved into multiple personalities and hinted towards his fiend and cult leader personas from the past. His entrances were always done in darkness, and he would hold a lantern walking slowly to the ring like he's leading a procession through the swamps. Sometimes he was alone, sometimes he was with his family of followers behind him in the shadows. The audience would light up their phones and often remain quiet like it was a funeral, giving the visual of swaying stars in the darkness across the arena. Wyatt would call these his fireflies, hence the Firefly Funhouse I mentioned earlier. When he was the fiend, his light source was the head of the old cult leader Bray Wyatt character carved out and turned into a lantern. <laughs> Real nightmare fuel shit. Uh, his entrance songs range from Live in Fear by Mark Crozer. complimented him very well as the cult leader and then he had metalcore band code orange cover living in fear when he was the fiend play his Firefly Funhouse theme when he would come out as the good persona and it was very like Pee Wee's Playhouse circusy music. If you're feeling lonely today, come along and throw your cares away. We're really glad that you're our friend and this is a friendship that'll never ever end. And then finally, on his most recent return, was another Code Orange, more industrial metal song called Shatter. His catchphrases included follow the buzzards. He used to sing, I've got the whole world in my hands. He would end promos by leaning too close into the camera and shouting run at his opponents or the audience. He would tell people to let me in in a menacing demonic tone. They used to begin Wyatt family entrances by appearing on the Titantron, naming whatever city the show is in that night. 
and saying we're here before he would blow out the lantern and it would cause the lights in the arena to go out, signifying the start of their entrance. Marlins. During his brief time away from WWE, he met back up with Jason Baker and planned to make a feature horror film that Baker described as Ishii the Killer meets Xanadu. (laughs) His creativity, especially for things horror, knew no bounds. No matter how poorly booked he was by Vince McMahon, who frankly treated his character like shit a lot of times, he never lost the fan support. He had that X factor. Anyone else who would try to pull off this gimmick, it would have been fucking laughably bad, but Kind of like The Undertaker, despite all that, despite all the bad booking, he made it work and the fans were always behind him. He went on to become a multi-time champion. It seems like he was universally loved by wrestlers across all the promotions, not just WWE, as they all took to social media and shared videos about grief and love for him and his family. That's kind of the reasoning behind why he's such a horror icon and why you should like check him out, why he was so spooky and everything else. For me personally, he is the very reason I got back into wrestling around 2012, 2013, and I've on and off kept tabs on it since then. I know this sounds silly, but his character was there in a weird way for me through like some of my toughest times before I was really properly diagnosed with depression and I was even having suicidal thoughts. He was a coping mechanism against the darkness of everyday life. Like any good horror media, Aaron, we constantly talk about horror as a pressure valve to release stress and all the negative emotions in the world. He brought me back to the WWE in 2013, like I said. He then again brought me back in 2019 with the Fireflies Funhouse vignettes and the debut of The Fiend, and yet again at the end of last year and beginning of this year with his second return. I don't know if I'll keep watching wrestling now that he's gone, to be honest with you guys. Rest in peace, Bray Wyatt, Wyndham. And also rest in peace, Luke Harper, a.k.a. Mr. Brody Lee in AEW. He was another member of the Y family who passed away unexpectedly back in 2020. I want to end it on sharing some of my favorite Bray Wyatt moments and matches fellow wrestling fans and even fellow horror fans can look up to kind of get an idea of who he was. Most of these can be found on YouTube. If you are a subscriber to Peacock, Peacock has the WWE Network. The WWE Network has a whole Wyatt section now since his death. Other great resources include articles like Bleacher Report's article, Remembering Bray Wyatt, The Best Matches and Moments in an Unforgettable WWE Career by Eric Beeston or favorite Bray Wyatt matches thread posted on the subreddit Squared Circle back on August 24th. So here are my favorite Bray Wyatt moments. All the debut vignettes that aired during the summer of 2013, my favorite being when they sent this quote-unquote WWE.com reporter to the Wyatt compound. These aired during the July 8th edition of Raw that year. I believe they're all on YouTube. All you have to search is news reporter looks for the Wyatt family. It's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque. We get a glimpse of the original three Wyatt family members. Eric Rowan wears a creepy white sheep's mask and looks like a modern slasher. Out of the original three, he is the only one still alive. So I can't imagine what Eric Rowan is going through right now, having lost two of his best friends. Luke Harper, again, the late Luke Harper, who I known as Mr. Brody Lee in AEW, passed away in December 2020 from pulmonary fibrosis. And he is basically like, a lost member of the Sawyer clan from Texas Chainsaw. He's like this hulking dude in really ratty clothes and has a ratty beard and long hair. And then, of course, Bray Wyatt himself. Then on to Royal Rumble 2014, Bray Wyatt versus Daniel Bryan, now known as Bryan Danielson in AEW. 
in a singles match. Their entire feud helped continue the elevation of Daniel Bryan into megastardom, which led to Daniel Bryan main eventing that year's WrestleMania. That Royal Rumble match is fucking really good. Possibly one of my favorite matches of all time, Elimination Chamber 2014. It was a six-man tag match of the entire Wyatt family, the original three, versus The Shield. It is my favorite six-man tag match ever. Possibly my favorite modern era match and one of my favorite top five, top ten matches. It made all six men involved look strong. It helped propel Bray and all three Shield members, Seth Rollins, Roman Reigns, and Dean Ambrose. And Dean Ambrose now goes by John Moxley in AEW into superstardom. Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns are the faces of the company for WWE right now. John Moxley is one of the main faces for AEW right now. May 19th, 2014, Monday Night Raw. There's an escalating promo Bray Wyatt delivers, which ended with the quote, I got the whole damn world in my hands. What makes that promo especially good? The crowd at first were being kind of a pain in the ass, chanting what after like every line he delivered. And he like barely elevated his voice, but slowly he escalated through the promo telling this creepy story that ends in him shouting, I got the whole damn world in my hands. Great example of his promo work. WrestleMania 30 match against John Cena, especially just for the Wyatt family entrance. WrestleMania 31 match against The Undertaker. This is a horror fan's dream match come true. All the buildup to this match was Bray Wyatt by himself. One of my favorite moments is uh, at one point they bring out a coffin and the fans think it's the return of The Undertaker and Bray Wyatt pops out of the coffin and says he's (laughs) going to take The Undertaker's soul at WrestleMania. Survivor Series 2015, the Brothers of Destruction, who are again Undertaker and now kind of shithead mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee, Kane, versus the Wyatt family, which was specifically Bray Wyatt and Luke Harper. Again, I recommend that mostly for the entrances. Raw, April 11th, 2016, Roman Reigns and Bray Wyatt, longtime rivals teaming up versus Sheamus and Alberto Del Rio in a tag match. Elimination Chamber, February 2017. Uh, it was an Elimination Chamber match in which he finally won the WWE Championship, beating AJ Styles, John Cena, Dean Ambrose, The Miz, and Baron Corbin. And then the following SmackDown on February 14, 2017, when he successfully defended the title in a triple threat against Cena and AJ Styles. Also amazing. All the Firefly Funhouse episodes from 2019, they're all uploaded on YouTube. Even if you're not a fan of wrestling and you're not interested in looking up his matches, go look up that shit. That's the stuff I showed you, Aaron, and I recommend it in the past. The Fiend's debut at SummerSlam 2019, which all the Firefly Funhouse vignettes led up to. Again, if anything, at least watch The Fiend's entrance. You don't have to necessarily watch the match. His match against Finn Balor at that SummerSlam. It's one of the best reveals and entrances in all of wrestling, in my opinion. The entrance alone is a goddamn horror show. (laughs) Royal Rumble 2020. He had a strap match with Daniel Bryan versus the Fiend character for the championship, and it was brutal as fuck. WrestleMania 36. I brought this up on a past episode, Aaron. This was the Firefly Funhouse match against John Cena during the COVID era when they had no crowds. And it was basically a pre-taped horror acid trip psychological takedown of the John Cena character. Yeah, I remember you telling me about this. <laughs> yeah, it was also like a retrospective of Bray Wyatt and all his personas. Aaron, you described, and this is a perfect way to describe it, it's like, what if a match turned into, no, John, everyone can see you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I implore horror fans, and even if you don't like wrestling, to go watch this, because it's way less of a match and a lot more of a surreal cinematic nightmare. And it was Wyatt really kind of flexing his creative muscles. He finally won at WrestleMania this match. And I think it was the only WrestleMania match, excuse me, he ever won, unfortunately. But it is so fucking fun. Again, WrestleMania 36 Firefly Funhouse match. 
Yeah, I would back that up. I mean, like I said, I'm not into wrestling. I've never really been into wrestling. I never got into that whole thing, even though I grew up with tons of people that liked it and still know people that like it. But to watch something that is kind of wholly created by Wyatt, this whole concept he came up with, putting the videos together, all the promos and everything, like it's just fun to watch because it's it truly is a horror fan just doing their own thing, coming up with their own concept, and then like making it happen in the best way. So yeah, I mean I, I agree. Like even if you're not into wrestling, it's worth checking out just for the horror side of it for sure. Yeah. And here's just a last couple ones I'll bring up. Extreme Rules 2022 from last year. This is the return of Bray Wyatt at the end of the show. Leading up to the show, WWE would play uh, White Rabbit randomly during commercial breaks or like at live shows throughout the months leading up to this. And then they started showing these QR codes that would appear like in backstage segments or they'd flash on screen. And if you caught the QR code, it would bring you to like this QR code campaign that shared cryptic videos and messages and like would implore you to go down the rabbit hole. And then it all turned into like Bray Wyatt returning at Extreme Rules. His SmackDown return after that Extreme Rules on October 14th, 2022, in which he delivered a promo called This Is Just Me Being Me promo. Again, one of his all-time best. The last match I'm going to recommend is called The Blacked Out Match. Funnily enough, it was sponsored by Mountain Dew Pitch Black. (laughs) Synergy. (laughs) Yeah, against LA Knight at this year's 2023 Royal Rumble. Back in January, uh, Wyatt wore glow-in-the-dark paint and red glowing contacts, and he looked like a glowing demon straight out of the Insidious movies. It was the last televised match for Bray before he went on medical leave for the severe COVID and then ultimately passed away. This match and his feud with Wyatt has helped propel LA Knight into stardom, in which he's currently right now. At the time of this recording, he is one of the hottest acts in wrestling, and his first major feud was with Bray Wyatt. That kind of helped him get to that next level. The very last thing I'm going to recommend is just a couple weeks ago, the August 25th, 2023 SmackDown episode was an entire tribute episode to Bray Wyatt, as well as the late Terry Funk, who Terry Funk passed away earlier in the week. I bawled like a baby. I will say this, despite all the WWE's faults, despite Vince McMahon being a real big piece of shit, they know how to produce moments so well, and they did a great job with his tribute episode. And they even brought back Eric Rowan, who hadn't been with the company in a while, and Eric Roman and Braun Strowman, who Braun Strowman would later be the fourth member of the Wyatt family. They put them kind of front and center by the empty rocking chair that Bray Wyatt used to sit in. And again, I don't know what it's like for Braun Strowman losing both Luke Harper and Bray Wyatt in the last three years. Suddenly, again, Bray Wyatt was 36, Luke Harper was 41 when he passed away. I really feel bad for Eric Rowan because Eric Rowan was there in the beginning with them. He was original Wyatt family member. So yeah, rest in peace, Bray Wyatt. Rest in peace, Luke Harper. Thank you for all the great moments, but what a good horror icon that was taken way too soon. So yeah, thank you for bearing with me on that one long giant recommendation all about Bray Wyatt. Absolutely. Yeah, this is something you've been talking about literally for years over the course of our show. Yeah, so he he is the reason why I went back into wrestling. Wrestling has always been a big part of your life, so it's important to talk about these things and pay tribute to an artist who like really did something cool and novel and bring them to other people's attention. So no, this is the perfect opportunity to bring this stuff up. I joked about this with you, Aaron and Shelby. I don't know if this has ever happened to you like, celebrity deaths even celebrities i liked never hit me too hard 
the mm-hmm. closest one I could think of before Brea was maybe MCA of the BC Boys. Mm-hmm. But even then, I was just kind of like, oh, well, you know, like, it sucks. I wish it didn't happen, but it is what it is. But when, like, the news dropped about Bray Wyatt, it was like I had just heard the news of a sibling pass away. For sure. Mm-hmm. I still don't know if it's silly in my head to, like, mourn a wrestler who I didn't know personally at all and to actually shed tears over that. I feel a little silly about that. That's kind of where I am. Like it hit me in the gut much harder than I ever expected it to. And I never thought a celebrity or, you know, an entertainer who I have don't know personally would ever do that to me. No, I get it. I mean, especially in this day and age with social media and things, we see people already, we see their whole lives, you know, and even with all the personas and things, like you said, you saw everything that went into building those personas and like, they're people now. They're not like the old days where they were just pictures in a magazine. Yeah. You know, they're really people to us. I saw Tom Savini's post about him showing off the mask. I used to be a huge wrestling fan when I was a kid and I've fallen out of it. But the mask was, I mean, it was incredible. The fact that I'm not into wrestling these days, but I've seen his name everywhere, like absolutely everywhere in places like Tom Savini's Instagram, where I never expected to see wrestling yeah yeah. he truly touched so many people so you know he was bigger than just a wrestler or just a celebrity who you know you see on tv for sure there's really like just one last thing about bray wyatt going off of tom savini i remember and i just double checked it and it's still like this but if you google tom savini bray wyatt the top three images are like bray wyatt in tom savini's shop with all like savini's masks in the background yeah the next image is Tom Savini holding a Fiend Funko Pop. And then the next one is Tom Savini with all the Bray Wyatt Fiend masks lined up in front of him, like all the molds for the mask. That's awesome. So like, yeah, it's a shame. I'm pretty sure now with his death, we're never going to get that horror movie that he was making with Savini's partner. But I mean, if maybe if someone picks up, if it's even just in the concept phases right now, like someone picks it up and turns into a movie, that'd be amazing. But yeah, one of the best horror minds, not just wrestling minds gone too soon this right here this is just me okay you know, this is a, a version of me that I'm, i've never got to introduce to you guys before this is just me being me genuine me for the first time <laughs> and I, I and i got to a point where i thought that everything that i'd ever done here or otherwise i thought it was all meaningless nothing i ever did has mattered to anyone and yeah. And I was, I, I was wrong. I was wrong. I can sit here right now today and I can look all of you in the eyes and I can say that you were there when I was weak, when I was vulnerable, when I was down. So I just wanted to say thank you. You all saved my life. You wouldn't let me alone. Every time I tried to run away and hide, you were there to find me. When I left things behind, you found them. You chased me. You are the reason. Hell yeah. Let's go ahead and transition into talking about the haunting. There once was a house. A bright, happy home. Something bad happened. Now it sits all alone. Is this where you're going? That's Hill House. It's perfect, isn't it? You all suffer from sleep disorders. My job is to find out why. 
What's the deal with the Adams Family Mansion? I gotta be honest, I don't get a real strong sleep vibe from this place. <laughs> don't you love it here? This is so twisted. Calling it an insomnia study allows me to create a highly suggestive environment to observe the dynamics of fear. You don't tell the rats, they're actually in a maze. I just think Dr. Marrow's up to something. Have you ever kept something to yourself because you were afraid? All the time. So, like we mentioned earlier, this recommendation from you, Shelby, kind of tipped off our entire last month worth of content, both Patreon and the main feed. So, thank you for that. You're welcome. Question. Mm -hmm. Um, Why? (laughs) What the hell? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying, this movie was more fun than I was expecting on rewatch. There are things I liked about it. It's wild how much of a mess this movie is. And it notoriously has terrible critical reviews, terrible audience reviews. Mm -hmm. What about this movie? So that's what I was wondering was, is this something that you saw when you were younger, when it came out that latched onto you or what? I told Derek, this was the first horror movie I saw in theaters. Wow. Yeah, this was my first. Hell yeah. Horror, and that's why I think it really stuck with me. Okay. You know, clearly I have a bias because I was like 10. I remember going with my aunt and we were in like Seattle or something because I used to go to summer camp up there. It was just like this whole thing. And it was one of those two where watching it again when I, when I watched it the other day for this. I remember the surround sound was so cool because like when the ghosts move around, you could hear them all around and everything. It's definitely one of those that was a lot more palpable in theaters than in the home viewing experience. And as a kid, I was so into haunted houses. That was like I was so into horror, but I was like really into haunted houses. And it was like it just hit me at the right time. And it doesn't surprise me that it's one of my favorite horror movies because it turned into one of my favorite TV miniseries that came out Uh later. That I didn't know they were actually in conjunction with each other in a way. But yeah, personally, I just think it's a fun haunted house movie. I think the lore is so dark. They don't come out and say a lot of stuff. But the lore was so... A lot of it went over my head as a kid. And my aunt would lean over and explain some stuff. Clearly, like, seeing that I was like, what's going on? I don't really understand. And I remember it just being really dark and... The mix of newer CGI, which I think was better than some of the CGI we have today. Not good, but better than some of the stuff I've seen out of Marvel in the last couple of years. It was late 90s endearing CGI. I agree with you. Right? That plus the amount of practical where you were actually in the house and the actors were actually in this house with these weird things and enough practical effects that I felt there with them. (laughs) (laughs) Plus the fact that so many of these actors were either already sort of famous, but then became famous later it's one of those weird casts where it's like oh you guys all kept doing stuff that's pretty cool yeah it somehow didn't tank your careers yeah you know horror is so notorious for having these people who kind of flitter away and you look them up later and it's like what did they keep doing and it's like oh not much else and this movie they all kept going so yeah and this is my first complete watch because i'd seen bits and pieces of this movie when you first recommend this movie shelby because i'll admit 
I was more open to it than maybe Aaron, but not by much. I was also like, what the hell? Oh, I could tell. Where is this? Okay. I mean, if you hadn't recommended this, we might have done this movie down the line as like for our Patreon as like a commentary track. That's where I thought we were going to go eventually with this movie. Right off the bat, by the way, I just want to clear something up because I apologize. I did this both on Patreon episode about the Shirley Jackson book, as well as our last episode on our main show on the original The Haunting. I kept referring to Luke as Jack, and there is never a Jack character in any. Yeah, there's never a Jack. There's never a Jack. (laughs) I have no idea where I got the name Jack from because it wasn't even in this version either. No, it's a good name. His name has always been Luke, unless I experienced some weird Mandela effect since then. So he's been fucking Luke. Yeah. In your dimension, it was Jack. (laughs) Well, yeah. Like, for some reason, I was like, oh, in the movie, they switched his name from the book. But they never did that. I don't know where I got that from. But anyway, like, going back, in retrospect, I'm so fucking happy you brought this up. And I'm so happy that not only did you want to do an episode on this, but this is one of your favorite horror movies. Because a part of me wanted to hate this movie. A part of me is screaming in my head, this is a bad movie. And to run away from it like it's Hill House itself. And yet, like yeah. Nell and the house, specifically in the book, I am drawn to it for an unknown reason. And I can't help but speak from a place of an enjoyment with it. Do I think it's an absolute mess? Yes, in many ways I do. But I had a fucking blast watching it. And I only watched it once. I was having a ton of fun. I'm so glad to hear that. On one hand, if the original movie was A New Hope and Flanagan's Netflix adaptation was like The Empire Strikes Back... <laughs> I think this 1999 adaptation is like the Star Wars holiday special, yes. and it falls in that chronology. It is, yeah. But then on the other hand, it has such endearing late 90s sleepover movie rented from Blockbuster like mm-hmm. vibe to it that I can't help but love it. Oh, I know. If this had been 10 years ago, you watching it, I don't even think it would have been as enjoyable as it yeah. is Yeah, It's been enough time. Yeah, and it brought back that childhood nostalgia of late 90s, early 2000s Blockbuster renting horror movies with my friends. That like I really never did appreciate until maybe The Ring. As I was watching this movie, I realized I had a weird nightmarish childhood nostalgia for it because I remember they marketed the fuck out of this on TV with commercials. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember it being heavily marketed. And I remember probably actually while I was watching wrestling on like Monday nights, Mm -hmm. they would air the commercials. And I remember seeing like in the previews, those cherub face carvings coming to life with the ghost kids. I remember that scaring the absolute fuck out of me as a kid to the point where I didn't want to watch that movie. Those cherubs were good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think it's funny, but like as a kid, I would run out of the room or change the channel every time the commercial came on for this movie because of those cherub kids coming to life. Yeah. So Aaron, what were your initial thoughts? So this is one that I saw around when it came out. I know I didn't see it in theaters, but my grandfather's remarried wife had a bunch of horror VHS tapes and I would watch those at their house. I believe I remember watching it there. Our next door neighbor, she was also like a single older woman that I would mow her lawn and stuff. She would let us borrow her VHS tapes and she also had a big pot of thriller and horror stuff from the like 90s and 2000s. I want to say between both of those, like I know I watched it on VHS. I viscerally remember the VHS feel of watching this. I did not watch this on cable with ads and everything, but I watched it back in the day. And I definitely remember being like, eh, sure, whatever. But I'll agree with Derek. Is this movie good? 
whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. Is this movie fun? Sure. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I enjoyed being taken back to like 1999, 2000, fifth, sixth grade in that neighborhood, going back and putting VHS tapes in and stuff like this, where this was a big, major studio event horror movie. And it was everywhere. And everybody was talking about this. And it was like this big to-do. Yeah, DreamWorks put a lot of marketing behind this movie. Yeah, there was definitely the like, oh, I really appreciate how fucking insane the production design and the sets are for this. Holy shit. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit more. The sets are so crazy. Being honest, I think everybody in this cast is woefully miscast (laughs) nobody in this movie is right for this movie oh a hundred percent as much as i like even lily taylor her performance is in a completely different version of this movie that never actually got made and i think everybody else is pitched to what this movie is but it's the wrong chunk of people there's weird things like that that i look at now you know with the eyes that i have and i'm like wow this is at least a really interesting mess going back and seeing liam neeson as a scientist it's just like okay well see that was even the thing with dark man years earlier is he plays a scientist in dark man yeah that's true it's also like not really believable there either but you kind of buy along with it because the rest of that movie is super goofy well it's also like pierce brosnan and lawnmower man yeah not only does liam neeson in this movie play a scientist he basically plays scarecrow from batman he does you're right <laughs> i'm gonna yeah. study the nature of fear and dissect yeah. what fear is his name is dr david marrow <laughs> dr marrow what the fuck yeah he puts on a scarecrow costume at night and hunts the batman yep. yeah and then him lying about the insomnia thing to attract test subjects. Yeah. yeah wild shit not only is that just unethical and once he published paper would not be accepted by any medical journals isn't it illegal for him to do that probably the best cast i will say was bruce dern bruce dern was Uh exactly who he needed to be i did like bruce dern in this movie yeah Yeah. and like disappointing (laughs) that he's not in the movie more considering it's bruce dern yeah same with virginia madsen yeah fucking the star of Candyman is in this movie for yes. four minutes at the very beginning as the bitch sister and she's out? Four minutes as just like a bitch. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just a total <laughs> bitch. And you're just like, Virginia Madsen, come, come back. You're, you're a good actress. Come back into this. Yeah. I think what I enjoyed the most about us doing this episode was this was a delight for me to like <laughs> prep shit for to discuss the background and the production of this movie because holy shit, This is one of those that by the time we're done talking about the production, 100% you understand how we got from the Shirley Jackson novel and the first adaptation to the mess that is this one. Because let me tell you, we have, you know, the stars, you have DreamWorks, you have the bad CGI, you have all these surface level things just below the surface swimming around with the weird CGI sharks is Tom Cruise. Stephen King, Lawrence Kasdan, Paul Verhoeven. There's all these other weird fucking people involved in the history of this movie, and it's truly bananas. Spielberg. Yeah, Spielberg. (laughs) It's truly fucking insane how this movie even came to be. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But that's what I think I enjoyed the most was 
being able to dig into all of that nonsense for this movie. Mm-hmm. Just up top for horror newbies, especially if you watched the 1963 original Haunting, you should watch this movie because the tonal whiplash alone is just yeah. insane and hilarious. Absolute polar opposite. I'm, I love that we are doing yep. both of these yeah. movies back to back. Back to back. Because they could not be more different in so many ways but then exactly alike in so many ways, which we'll talk about. And also, like, missed the point of Shirley Jackson's novel this much. But it was, again, such a beautiful mess. And I knock back, Aaron, I think this movie is a capital B blast. I would much rather watch a mess of a movie that is entertaining and fun to watch like this than a movie that's just mid and boring and whatever. My only knock against this movie is that the runtime is a little too long. It is. Yes. Otherwise, I had a ton of fun. And frankly, that's what we said about the original, too, is that yeah. it's paced like an old movie. It's yeah. kind of slow, and it's almost two hours. Yeah. So I get how that can, like, kind of wear. And yeah, this one's the same way, but at least this one, like, the last 30 minutes of this is just kind of nonstop. The last 30 minutes. Yeah. Oh, well, horror newbies, uh, it's not scary. Like, I will admit, there is a creepy moment involving mirrors and Nell. Oh, for sure. I'll get into more detail when we get there. That was maybe the scariest thing. The jump scares are kind of laughable. There's one with a skeleton coming out of the ground, I guess. <laughs> Again, this terrified 10-year-old me, but like 35-year-old me is kind of just laughing at some of these jump oh, yeah. scares. In fact, I want to say that's one of the reasons this was one of my first horror movies in theater was I think someone my parents knew or someone had watched it already and were like, oh, she can go see it. Yeah. It's like no big deal. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like, okay, you can actually go see it on the big screen where I can't turn it off and everything. Because that was the big thing is you can't turn it off or fast forward to the scary parts. Yeah. The adults around me at the time also realized it wasn't that scary, <laughs> you know, for me anyway. But despite all like the wild presentation, you're right, Shelby, like when you were saying earlier that this movie actually has dark themes behind it, but because of the presentation and it's more of just that stuff happening is why we have ghosts and it doesn't bring attention to it otherwise. But like when you think about it, like, what the fuck did this guy do to all those kids, actually, like besides murdering them? Oh, I know. And see, I think that's why it really terrified me as a kid, because I was an overthinker child. Yeah. So the stuff happening on screen, of course, that's awesome, whatever. But like afterwards, I really overthought, what was he, the kids? Yeah. How were there so many kids? You know, like the bones they eventually find. And- yeah, like all of that, that. When you think about it, like as an adult, that shit's terrifying. It's yeah. child yeah. death. It's child torture. Like God knows what else he did to the kids. Child mm-hmm. servitude. So you have that element, but the movie kind of just steps over that and uses it as just a reason as here's why we have ghosts. It really does. It really could have dug into that a little more. Yeah. yeah. DreamWorks was like, let's make it a little fluffier, guys. We don't yeah. need to like, sure, we'll kind of mention uh-huh. it just enough, but like, we don't need to like get into it or anything. Because also another movie that I would say is on the same level of quote-unquote horror is this movie and a movie that has a weird pairing in my head now is again brendan Fraser's the mummy Mm. to the point where even some of the set design in this house i feel like was just borrowed extra sets from the mummy (laughs) i was going to mention that eventually okay people want to rag on how bad the cgi in this movie is and how like everything looks terrible oh god the cgi in this is terrible Ugh, it doesn't look any worse than the fucking mummy no which is beloved and nobody fucking says anything mm-hmm. about the cgi in that i agree same with event horizon but it is also like really goofy gummy yeah. rubbery cgi in the mummy as well i don't yeah. think that there is 
any level of quality difference between those two. Uh, the Mummy's a better movie. I enjoy The Mummy a lot more. Oh, for sure. The CGI part of it? No way. No. Like, this is regular, everyday, studio budget CGI. To the point where they, they both have a giant spooky face that shows up at some point. I'm like, this is straight uh, from The Mummy. Yeah. Going, yeah. 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 So, yeah. In a nutshell, you know, we talked about the original movie, where it's a doctor of parapsychology who brings these people to this supposedly haunted mansion to see, like, does the paranormal exist, right? The general nutshell of this one is, again, a doctor of parapsychology brings these three people to this spoopy mansion, but this time it's under the guise of conducting a sleep study, like we mentioned, and he's actually hoping that there's going to be weird fear triggers and responses so he can, like, study the human response to fear. <laughs> and then, like we mentioned, the whole history of the house is not just the house is just born bad. This man, Hugh Crane, built it for his wife and everybody fucking died that set foot in. No, this time it's purposely cursed because Hugh Crane was Freddy Krueger abducting children that worked in his textile factories from their families and murdered them in the fucking house. So it's just a house yep. full of kid ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Just Jesus fucking Christ right off the bat. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. You mentioned earlier with the Rowan recommendation of too edgy for me. It kind of almost does it in that 90s. It's time to be edgy. We're going to have an edgy reason for why this is so haunted. Yeah, well, it's so funny. Freddy Krueger was such a good Hulk. They were like, we want to do a haunted house and we want to do a Freddy Krueger-esque, but we don't want a slasher movie. Yeah. So we're just going to have to tiptoe around all the child murder. It happened and it's a huge plot point. But, like, we're not going to show it, and we're not going to actually explain it that well either, <laughs> which is probably why that was so terrifying to a child me, you know? Mysterious child death. Well, and, and most of the ghost activity in this movie are actually the kids, so mm -hmm. it's not even just the house itself. Save us, Eleanor! Yeah. Again, 10, 11-year-old me scared shitless from that commercial. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's one thing we don't have as much anymore. I'm sure you guys have mentioned this. Because we don't see trailers the way we used to yeah. over and over and over again between our favorite shows. I have so many movies I watch where I can pick out what was from the trailer because I saw the trailer 5,000 times. Yeah. And it's like, that part was from the trailer. And like, we don't have that anymore, really. Well, I mean, that's kind of what first taught me that sometimes they'll film stuff just for the trailer to throw people off. Yeah, this guy just tried to sue over that because that movie yesterday had Anna de Armas in the trailer, but she wasn't in the movie. He's trying to sue the studios over that, over <laughs> false advertising. Yeah, because he only went to see the movie because she was in it. Yeah. And then he got there and her mm -hmm. scenes were cut out. Yeah, we don't see the same trailer over and over and over again. So, like, we don't have those moments where you watch those movies and you're like, I remember that from the trailer, yeah. you know? I would only push back on that to say, if you watch Hulu and you don't pay for the, like, ad-free version true. of Hulu, you will see the that same movie true. trailers over and fucking yeah. yeah, as someone who doesn't pay for, like, the ad-free Hulu. You're right, because yeah. I got a package with Disney and they didn't, they didn't include the ad free. But I mean, also on that point, Shelby, they're like, this is a movie that is never going to be made ever again. Nope. Just like Event Horizon, just like The Mummy. And kind of going back to Aaron, what you said of this being big studio event, popcorn movie, horror moment. We're just never going to have this type of movie again. The most recent example of that that I can think of, the closest example I can think of is maybe It? And even then, mm. we didn't really know who any of those kids were in the first movie. And the second mm. movie that has the adults in it, okay, these are all people we know, right? That's close. And then maybe the stuff in the Conjuring universe, because there's just so much built-in brand recognition with that whole franchise now. 
It's like Marvel where it's like, oh, who's going to be in the next Nun movie? It's so-and-so. Yeah. Who's going to be in the next Conjuring? Oh, look, they brought this person in now. That's the closest thing I can think of as far as studio stuff. But yeah, this was meant to be a huge tentpole thing, which I'll get into that in a little bit after we're done kind of talking about our reactions. But right off the bat, I mean, we've already discussed the old movie, you know, so there are things that are pulled directly from the book in very interesting ways. Like the entire bit at the beginning where Lily Taylor and Virginia Madsen's mother has just died and they're arguing about her staying in the apartment or coming to live with them and the car and all this bullshit. All of that is ripped right from the Shirley Jackson book, but it's so extra heightened in terms of the sister and the brother-in-law being so fucking villainous and the little kid being <laughs> such a shit. What have I been dealing with for the past 11 years? I've cooked, I've cleaned, I've mopped up her urine. You call that an unpleasant detail? Hey, now your we sister all know didn't write the done. will. We're trying to help. Do not help me. <laughs> anyway, once probate closes, we can put this apartment on the market. And we all might be able to make a few bucks. Also, we know how much you love Mom's car, so we're giving it to you. You're taking away my home and giving me a 20-year-old car? Oh, absolutely. We'll deduct the value from the proceeds of the apartment. Who are you? Do you understand that I have nowhere to go? We've been talking, and Lou and I are very busy, and we could use someone to help us with the cleaning and the cooking. Looking after Richie? Eleanor, help me. I gotta pee. <laughs> Richie, not now. Rewatching, I was so frustrated because I was like, I don't remember them being this unreasonable. <laughs> yeah. This insane. You know? Yeah, to like a comic degree, it's ridiculous. Yeah, in the yeah. book, it's a little more like they have kind of a point, but Nell also wants to experience life now. Yeah, in the book, they very much have a point because Nell is still very naive and immature and they're kind of trying to encourage her to like come live with us because you're not ready to fully go out into the world yet and this it's just fuck you you're not getting the car yeah. <laughs> it's, it's wild how mean they are yeah you're not getting any of this and come be our nanny yeah, yeah like, come be our nanny yeah no like wanders into her mother's room and it's all sentimental and again heightened and the winds blowing the curtain, which becomes a visual throughout the movie. <laughs> the amount of curtain blowing in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of curtain yeah. blowing. Oh my God, the amount of curtain blowing. I love Jerry Goldsmith. This score of his in this movie is weirdly mm. schizophrenic because it goes <laughs> from like yeah. kind of his 70s style mean. horror and sci-fi stuff to yeah. like these whimsical Forrest Gump feather blowing in the wind kind of yeah. bits of the score. And that was a moment where like, it went from being the serious dour score into like the breeze blowing her hair as her mother is like, you know, it's okay, baby, looking at all of her old dead shit. Parts of that were just wild. And then it cuts immediately to like Liam Neeson 
as this parapsychologist at this university, which, what happened to that? Do any major universities still have these parapsychology departments? No, because in the 80s and 90s, there were sure a lot of yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. That's we one have of my favorite tropes. Multiple yeah. movies were like, that's yeah. a thing. Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Poltergeist. Yeah. Poltergeist. They were all yeah. over the place. Yeah, it's one of my favorite horror movie tropes. Of an established giant university has their dedicated yeah. paranormal section. Yeah. What kind of cracked me up to being that I have always been a Star Wars fan. Uh, two months before this movie came out, Liam Neeson also stars in The Phantom Menace. What a year he had. Oof. That's so funny. I didn't even think about the timing of this. Yeah. Uh-huh. And honestly, that's what yeah. led to my comparisons of the movies with Star Wars and then this being the holiday special. Because again, as awful and as a mess as like the holiday special is critically, like it's a fucking blast to watch, especially when you're drinking. Yeah. yeah. So somebody calls Lily Taylor and it's like, hey, Check out the sleep study. Come do this, right? It's him, right? It's it's Liam Neeson who calls, isn't it? It's somebody. We're not we're not sure who it is. Because she says yeah. it at the we're end. Not sure There's who it a is. reveal there. Yeah. Or it's <laughs> Liam Neeson's voice. Yeah. 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 Correct. Right. Like somebody yeah. invites her. What cracked me up is this moment where Lily Taylor's in her car. She's got a big old giant paper map that she's looking at. She's tracing the route with her finger. Puts the map down. Looks up. And there's the giant, massive fucking house sitting right in front of her. Like, how could you miss it? She's just like, where am I? Am I, I know. Right? That moment, I fucking laughed out loud. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we rules. It's almost like they wanted her to get lost for a second, but they were like, we can't fit in another scene. This movie's already very long. Like, let's just get her there. But they needed that map thing, little bit for some reason. It reeks to me of, oh, we wrote all this extra nonsense in because in the original Shirley Jackson book, there's a lot more to her trip from Boston to the house. She stops a few times. She meets some people along the way. And a lot of the trip stuff is foreshadowing to stuff in the later in the book. It seems like there probably was a moment where she stopped because she was lost and wasn't sure where she was and they were just like, "Uh, cut all this out. But then there was still like that moment that they left in And so, yeah, we then meet fucking Bruce Dern again, literally for like a minute of screen time in this as Mr. Dudley, the groundskeeper. And of course, he does his cryptic, this house is bad, kind of shit. Don't go down that road. Yeah. I would argue out of all of the Dudleys, including the Netflix Dudley, which has a much bigger role than the movie Dudleys. Still my favorite Dudley, Bruce Dern's in this one. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Dern's minute and a half of yeah. screen time. He was born to be Dudley, the yeah. groundskeeper. He just was. Yeah, especially at this point in his career, you can't look at Bruce Dern and think he's playing anything other than crazy old man on the side of the road. <laughs> well, and then when they show yeah. up at the end and they're in that fucking Volkswagen van, I'm like, hell yeah, yeah. Mr. Dudley, yeah. of course you would drive it. And so this is when we get our first glimpse in the house. And like I said earlier, holy shit, holy this house. shit, the sets that they built. These sets are incredible. That's one thing I was actually wondering when I did a rewatch. I was like, because I just remember being so grand mm-hmm. and I was not disappointed as an adult. Yeah. They're no. still so grand. Mm-hmm. Those doors, yeah. the fact that they actually built those fucking doors, holy shit. So the Luke character in this, Owen Wilson, right? This is very wow. early Owen Wilson. And he is very much in like, wow mode. Yeah. <laughs> Most of his lines of humor dialogue are not that funny. But no, there were not. a few moments where he really fucking cracked me up. And one was just this yeah. stupid moment where he was just like, okay, bye. I'll leave you alone now. I'll just have fun, I guess, doing your thing. Okay, I'm going to shut this door. So you can have some, I'm going (laughs) to shut this door, okay? Bye, I'm going to shut the door. But it's just him 
with both hands grabbing this door that's 50 giant feet high door. giant yeah. door slowly pulling it closed just be like okay now i'm gonna leave you in there i'm gonna shut this door that moment really did crack me up because it's just so fucking absurd so i had that as a note i was going to get to later on but that scene cracked me up too where all right, I'm going to go shut this door and give you a little privacy. Uh-huh. And they show the entire shot of him walking up the to the giant door. door. Yes. <laughs> and he gets smaller and smaller and smaller against the door. Yeah, it's great. The door is literally six times as tall as he is. It's also the same door that they brought up earlier where it's the, the gates vision of, of purgatory, the gates yeah. of hell and all the kids. He opens it, closes it. They show that entire thing. Nell kind of waits. And then she goes back to her fucking maze puzzle. Which also yeah. the maze puzzle has cartoon ghosts on it. And it's just, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. she's in the maze of Hill House. That was so dumb because earlier <laughs> he made that comment about rats can't know they're in the maze or whatever. Uh-huh. And then she's doing a maze puzzle. Like, come on. You yeah. Guys, come also, on. what do any of those have to do with a sleep study? Yeah, again. Are you tired? Do these yeah. puzzles. Okay. okay. That was a scene where, like, it really hit me that everything this movie does is a thousand percent on the nose. Oh, yeah. And subtlety <laughs> is not its strong point. But like going back to the set design, because the first thing, again, it looked like a set of the mummy. The first room she enters when she's inside the it's a castle. It's not a house. It's a fucking castle. Let's be real. Yeah. But the closest thing I can approximate these set designs to is Bram Stoker's Dracula of just how maximalist everything is. Mm -hmm. Every room in the house, every part of this movie has 40,000 details and things about it. And they beat you over the head with the set dressing. They beat you over the head of how evil and spooky this oh, yeah. house is. All the evil animal statues yeah. everywhere mm-hmm. that are lurking and like all oh, like the yeah. spikes that make no sense. Yeah, at least the movie two really does a great job showing off these sets. Yes. Oh, it, it does. Just kind of have them there. It does. And it's focusing on things. This movie goes way above and beyond to like really showcase those sets and. The one thing that I really kind of dig that I wrote down while rewatching it again, the house really reminds me of the xenomorph ship from the beginning of Alien. I can see that. The amount of weird buttresses down the hallway that looks like a weird rib cage, the inside coloring that's like a lot of red and brown and these weird metallic gross I want to say metallic, it's like copper. So it's this bile Mm -hmm. green kind of color. A lot of the inside of the house looks like you're inside the guts of this massive creature. And like Mm -hmm. that part of it works so well. As big as this fucking set is, it still really makes you claustrophobic. And it still constantly feels like the description of the house in the original book that the angles don't seem to work. This room shouldn't physically makes sense the way it's put together why does everything feel like it's coming down or trying to get you that part of this movie works so well easily the best thing about the movie is how well all of that works you know again no one in their right minds would actually live in this place yeah so this is where we meet mrs dudley and then on their way up to the Red Room where Nell's going to stay and all these little bits and pieces of things from the book that have come out in various versions of the adaptation. Which, again, yeah. the book didn't have the Red Room. I don't think the original movie either had the Red Room. And I'll get back to this. Did Mike Flanagan maybe borrow some stuff from this 1999 adaptation? What? We'll return to that point. Oh, who knows? Could, yeah. We see this not at all ominous portrait of Hugh Crane who built and designed oh. the house. 
it's literally the bad guy from Ghostbusters too. It's the same fucking painting. Yeah. It is. It's, it's way, very it's much the same Vigo. Like pose and everything. Yeah. Scowl. Looking down with a furrowed brow. It's like, Vigo. Yeah. yeah. So when my mom was here, one of the things she wanted to go do was go to the National Portrait Gallery, which, by the way, is really cool. Is a lot of fun. Would recommend. It's not nearly as boring as I thought it was going to be, where it's just, oh, here's all the presidents and then all these rich white people <laughs> who got their portraits made. There's a lot of cool shit there. There's a lot of modern yeah. stuff there. I would definitely recommend it. Anyway, in the Hall of Presidents, all the presidential portraits, you know whose presidential portrait is actually really fucking rad? Teddy Roosevelt's. Because it's really? just Teddy Roosevelt walking down this dark staircase with all these fucking monsters coming out of the darkness behind him. What? Yeah, this was painted by Sigismund D. Ivanowski. I'm Googling I'm it. I'm it up, too. The monsters represented unrestrained capitalism. What the And the, fuck? like, multi-headed black snakes specifically represented standard oil. That weird fucking ominous presidential portrait is the vibe that we're talking about with this Ukraine portrait that's in this fucking movie. Like, not at all is that supposed to be welcoming and okay. Oh, shit, yeah. I've never seen this either. I've never seen that before. Yeah, it's pretty rad. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool as shit. It is. It's spooky, too. (laughs) That's the level of insanity that we're talking about for this movie, that this guy's just family portrait is on the wall. I love the moment of... Nell picking at Mrs. Dudley when Mrs. Dudley is clearly reciting her fucking, you know, we leave every night at six. We leave the yeah. food here. We don't stay after dark. That's from we, the book, know, too. Be back in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's been in every adaptation, but I like yeah. that Nell kind of fucks with her a little bit when she tries to do the she same does. thing with Theo. I don't stay after dinner. Not after it begins to get dark. I leave before dark comes. <sighs> so there won't be anyone here if you need help. We couldn't even hear you. No one could. No one lives any nearer than town. No one will come any nearer than that. In the night. In the dark. That's a good touch. Which, talk about miscasts, by the way. Let's go to Theo. Which is so strange because it's clearly sexy, very successful lady. Catherine Zeta-Jones. And on paper, it seems like, yeah, Catherine Zeta-Jones, she should fit, but she doesn't. She's so bad in this Like, movie. I don't know why she doesn't, but it feels like her whole performance was very uncomfortable for her. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was on her or if it was the script, because she feels yeah. less like Theo from the book, Theo from 1963, Theo even from the Netflix show. It yeah. feels way more like the forgotten friend from Sex and the City. Yeah. She yeah. feels way more like one of the gals. They got the very surface level shit about the character right. She is still a queer artist, but then from there, oh, she's this fucking self-absorbed celebrity version who's, oh yeah, I bought these boots in Milan, haha. All that shit is just, mm, this is not the character, and none of this works. And even Zeta doesn't make any of this work either, and the character would be way more interesting if Zeta was playing the character as the character was originally intended, this version makes no sense, and it's wrong. It seems like it was this weird, snarky, Paris Hilton-y kind of thing that just doesn't yeah. work. All her comedy, quote-unquote, I'm using comedy very fucking loosely, are, again, throwaway lines from a Sex and the City. It's like, I told my boyfriend we could do this, and I told my girlfriend the same thing, or these boots are you know $200, they're not meant for running. Lines like that that are nothing. 
and do nothing yeah. for anyone. Yeah. At least they kept her queer. And that's the thing. In the 60s version, that aspect of the character is there. But it is very under the surface because it was the sixties, <laughs> right? 60s, yeah. Even the like we completely stripped out the explicitness of this in the sixties works better than her just being like, My boyfriend was mad about it, and so was my girlfriend. Like those kind of lines like are just so corny and they just ring totally false for what that character should be. They do. Well, she seems like a lot of what she says is just for shock value. Yeah. So it doesn't ring true because you almost wonder as her character goes on, is that even true? Did she just say that to see how everyone would react? Because yeah. she seems to just be wanting a reaction out of people. And I didn't like that. Yeah. 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 Well, she and Nell do have a positive report, which at least they got that part of they it. Do. Right. Which as much as she like annoyed me, this version of Theo, I at least enjoyed her and Nell together a lot in this movie. I think that part of it's right. They just both feel like they are in completely different movies. Yeah. So it still feels off. The part that really made me roll my eyes, though, is when they go to the door to Purgatory. Nell basically gives away the entire plot of what's going to happen later in the movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. To Theo by explaining the painting. Super weird. And again, I, I find myself asking, who or what is this fucking house for? Because then we, I think from there, they went into like the circus spinning room, which Shelby, you mentioned that scene specifically stuck with you as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. That part was terrifying to me. I don't know. Circusy type music and the mirrors. It's spun around. They kind of are like, oh, he made this for children because it's so whimsical. But even as a kid, I was like, I've always referred to it as like the carousel room, but it's not a carousel. It just spins. And then there's a series of the rooms, which I had forgotten until my rewatch where they actually get off on a platform and go into a different spinny room. It was just this terrifying place where you could get trapped there. It looks like you couldn't get out of it if you didn't know how to get out of it. And I don't know, that room itself just really freaked me out. Yeah, well, and Mario 64 on Nintendo 64, which predates (laughs) this movie, I may add. Mario 64 inspired The Haunting, says Derek. Well, there is a level in its Boo's Mansion. Boo the ghost from Super Mario. One of the stars Mm -hmm. you get from Boo's Mansion is Ride Big Boo's Merry-Go-Round. And it's an entire room that's a weird, creepy merry-go-round that plays circus music. And it oddly is very similar to this movie's room. So, yes, I am going to say maybe somebody looked up fucking Big Boo's merry-go-round from Mario 64 (laughs) two years prior when they were developing this movie. So now we meet Luke, who is now a participant (laughs) in the study. (laughs) Oh, boy. Owen Wilson. Which, admittedly, (laughs) that makes a little bit more sense as to why he's here. Because in the original story, yeah. oh, well, he's the great nephew of the woman who now owns the house, and he's just there to make sure they don't get up to any nonsense, right? But he still serves the role of the skeptic. Mm-hmm. But it makes more sense that he's a participant in this study and not just kind of hanging around. Yeah, I did like that. Yeah. At least the movie, more so than any other character, tries to make him out to be an actual insomniac by showing scenes of him walking around the house at night and all that. In fucking kid PJs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought about this. Pretty sure the writers of this movie and none of the characters know what actual insomnia or mental illness looks like. Oh, yeah, especially no. Dr. Morrow. No, none of the what they show as insomnia felt like real insomnia yeah. at all. Yeah. So this is where we finally have everybody together. Oh, I, I counted it, by the way. There were t- at least 
two wows in the first five minutes that Owen Wilson was introduced. <laughs> wow. wow. And I think there were three within 10 minutes. And then he kept doing oh it throughout God. the movie and I lost count. It's like a wow time capsule. Oh, yeah. Wow. I also wrote down that Todd and Mary were born victims, but then they left the house immediately after Mary gets hit by like yeah, the piano the wire. Piano wire, yeah. I thought for sure those two were going to bite it, this movie. Dr. Marrow shows up with his two assistants. Todd and Mary. Mary's played by Alex Karamzay. She's striking in this movie. She was like the most striking mm. looking person in this movie. She looked familiar and when I looked her up, I noticed she was in Kindergarten Cop. Both mimic one and two and then blood work because she hasn't really been in a ton but I definitely like knew her from Mimic, which is Del Toro's movie, right? She also had the most 90s aesthetic look yeah. in this movie. That oh everybody. yeah, very much. Initially, I thought she was the nerdy gal from Twister and Volcano and all those movies, right? Different actress. Anyway, the other guy, Todd, played by Todd Field. Yeah. He is a jazz musician, actor, writer, director. His acting credits include... Just a few little things. Twister, Jan de Bont's movie before this. Eyes Wide Shut, this same year as fucking Nick Nightingale, the guy who gives... Tom Cruise, the password. <laughs> What's the password? What is the password? Orgy. You may enter. Orgy. Orgy. <laughs> and then he goes on to write and direct in the bedroom, little children and fucking tar, tar. from last year, yeah. all of which were nominated for best screenplay. He was nominated for best director for tar and Tar and In the Bedroom both nominated for Best Picture. What the fuck? And he's not really done any acting in the last 20 or so years either. The one credit I did see that I wanted to bring up, though, is he is the voice of Old Drippy in Aqua Teen Hunger Force Season 1. Talk about a fucking <laughs> flashback. He's like the yeah. weird pile of sentient mold. Wow. That sure was a mighty explosion, huh? Amazing. Yeah. You want to go play with my dolls? Yes. I would like nothing better. Well, this is Vanessa, and she fell in love with her boyfriend, Dewey, here. I wish I had a name. Well, I'll give you a name. How about old Drippy? Since you're dripping on all my stuff. What a wild-ass career. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, so he shows up in this movie, has two lines, and is in the movie for about four mm. minutes. <laughs> and then, like you said, <laughs> the, the fucking harpsichord that Mary knows how to play, apparently, magically tightens to the point that it pops and whips her in the eye, and they're... Out of the movie, they leave the house. Which I remembered being much more gory as a child. I, yeah. I remembered her losing her eye, but then I, upon rewatch, it was that they said she could have lost her eye. Yeah. yeah. Little kid me remembered her fucking eye. Yeah. Just got like popped out of her head. <laughs> Cracks me up how yeah. like little regard Liam Neeson has. He's just, yeah. oh, that sucks. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> Not just that. Yeah. Before that all happens, he basically says, thank you, Mary. You can stop now. <laughs> basically shuts her down. Quit playing this. This delightful music for us. And then when it happens, everybody does rush to her aid for a second, mm -hmm. except Nell. Nell shows like zero fucking pity for her and just wanders over to the harpsichord, looks at where it was tightened. Nell just is like, put this little cup on her eye so blood doesn't <laughs> get in it as there's already blood like, all, all over, over her face. Yeah. And so then I forgot, was it Catherine? It was whoever holds the little cup up to her eye almost like jams it into her eye. Yeah. I remember feeling bad for the actress. I'm like, oh my God, no, don't actually hurt her eye. I rewatched this movie twice in prep for this. Once was literally the day that Derek was like, I think Shelby wants to maybe do this movie. I was like, hold on, let me rewatch this. Cause like, holy hold shit, on. I haven't seen this in forever. But when I watched it that time, 
I was like, oh shit, did I like misremember this? Did her eye like fucking fall out? And they're like literally going to cup it back in with this little weird brandy cup? No, like you said, it was just well, like, yeah, keep the blood like, out of your eye. Glass. But I, I could have sworn yeah. it was going to be like, oh God, her eyeball fell out in the cup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so after this incident, Liam Neeson kind of reassures everybody like, it's going to be okay. We're all here. I have a cell telephone. <laughs> the exact phrase yeah. that he uses. Cell telephone. He also oh, says, I love that. Isolation is essential for building a scientific model. In and of itself, correct. Then why the fuck is everyone staying at the house at the same time and like hanging out communally? Right? Yeah. Okay, sure. Science. They go to these later scenes where he's doing his dictations. His dictations are like as if he was watching them from a one-way mirror, taking notes. Yeah, sure. yeah, I noticed that too. I'm like, how does he know some of this? Yeah, right? Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Again, his whole explanation, I think later on where he like is going off about why he wants to study fear. And he's just like, for no reason, fear is like the one thing in our human bodies that hasn't evolved. There's no purpose to sweaty palms. There's no purpose to this and that. I want to tap into fear to like. He doesn't quite say this, but it's almost like he's implying, like, I want to tap into fear to basically create superhumans. <laughs> it's like, I don't where yeah. my mind wandered to with this like whole like supervillain speech about why he's doing this study. That is the question. In the original movie, it's we want to prove whether or not the paranormal exists. Done. Mm-hmm. Cut and dry. Yes or no. This movie, it's I want to study the human reaction to fear. Why? What are we getting out of this? Are you Why? trying to develop some like yeah. new pharmaceutical or therapy technique? And his argument was ridiculous. Fear is absolutely still necessary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah. like you said, just like that, <laughs> yeah. Todd and Mary are out of the movie, which Mary, by the way, is maybe psychic? Question mark? Yeah. What was that? She seems to be more psychic than literally anybody else mm-hmm. in this movie. Everybody. She yeah. kind of mealy wanders in is like, this house is cursed. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I do love, speaking of Owen Wilson again, that uh, A, the like Valley of the Dolls joke was pretty funny. But I also like <laughs> that this is, again, early in his career, Bottle Rocket came out, what, 96, 97? Something the like first that, Wes yeah. Anderson movie, right? This was very early in Owen Wilson's career still. And it's funny because he's still clearly trying to figure out how his face works because <laughs> he has all these weird yeah. kind of awkward smiles still I know what you where mean, he's yeah. trying to be charming and flirting. But you can tell as an actor, he just hasn't quite figured out how to make that work yet. I do also like the moment where, again, he's wandering around in kid pajamas because he has insomnia in air quotes. Yeah. And him and Liam Neeson bump into each other and, like, scare the shit out of each other in the most giant, huge overreaction. Oh, God! God! Oh, you scared the... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, you gotta be careful. Are you all right? I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 you just don't jump out. Are you all right? Uh, yeah, I know. And Owen Wilson is furious. Yeah. He's so mad to be scared. He's just like, you can't just do man, you can't just do that. Yeah, he just flips the fuck out. But I do love after that moment <laughs> when they both calm down and they're like walking away from each other, Owen Wilson's just like, well, uh, listen, you should try and get some sleep. Huh? Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. See you tomorrow. All right. There's some good hallways that way. Uh-huh. How's this one? Not bad. Good, good. See you tomorrow. Okay. Sure, okay. Okay, so again, terrible CGI. And this is one of the things I Mm -hmm. don't understand. I get, oh, we have to make this giant 
wrought iron statue come to life. Okay, I get it. But the ghostly faces behind the curtains and the sheets, all of that could have been Those could have been so beautifully done practically. And it would have been so much creepier. It would have actually been scary. Yeah. Yes. All of that would have been a lot creepier, right? That's why I don't think as an adult this movie is nearly as scary as it's marketed because those are just cartoonish looking. Yeah. Yes. And so this is where like, okay, we start to get all the revelations of, okay, Hugh Crane owned these textile mills. He was buying people's children, question mark, and like declaring them dead. And then taking the kids to the house, doing dot, 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 and then killing the kids. And he would make them play hide and seek with him. They mentioned that at some point. Yeah, again, kind of glossing over like the underlying really creepy factor about all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Lots of Neverland Ranch shit going on here. Yeah. Also, Hugh Crane looks like a fucking old timey werewolf anytime that they show (laughs) those like old daguerreotypes of him. Like what (laughs) child would be like, oh, look at the funny man. Yeah, let's play. He's just like, hey, kids, like the fuck. Some of the reveals, though, of those story beats, like when she finds the ledger and all the names and then when they died. But the one scene I will go to bat for that was I thought legitimately creepy is there's one point when the house has pretty much been fucking with Nell and the ghost children are trying to lead Nell to like this evidence. It's that mirror scene again. The mirror scene with Nell, I thought was genuinely creepy because they were able to make her face look ghoulish and twisted in a kind of unnatural way way yeah. but not in the way you'd we'd expect now like in modern horror where like she'd look at it and it would be like a demon face or like even the ghoulish faces we saw in the netflix show from ghost now and all that it was more just her own face just doing really weird facial gestures and all that yeah and that was like mm-hmm. the one moment of the movie that was generally unsettling it's trying to like meld her face and the face of the original wife yeah. whose ghost is appearing. Yeah. But it looks uncanny and weird. And it's not CGI to hell either. Yeah. It, it actually looks effective. Yeah, it does look slightly off. A scene that I still thought was really creepy is when they start doing her hair like the original wife. Yeah, like yeah. Her hair starts moving as if someone's putting it up in a bun. And that stuck with me because as a kid, every time I would be laying in bed and I felt like my hair moved, I would be like, oh, my God, it's a ghost <laughs> doing my hair just like in the movie. Like, Well, what? and another thing I was reading that a lot of specifically female viewers found creepy was the sudden pregnancy thing. Yes. Yeah. That's also yeah. really weird. And that actually comes back in a really creepy jump scare in the Netflix show. But that aspect always is kind of really unsettling. To see like a sudden pregnant belly and your reflection yes. or something like that. There's just always something really weird about it. Yeah, because it implies the weird rape by the house. It does. In a weird mm. unsettling kind of way. That's Well, the scene ugh. when he, he pins her to the bed. Yeah. That's what I thought it was implying. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, with the spikes. Definitely rape. But then again, yeah. like this movie just kind of steps over that stuff to like get more to like Casually. 90s yeah. mummy like giant face shit, which I appreciate. I do. Between the soundtrack and the big giant ghost face, it was some 90s mummy shit that i really love speaking of that scene real quick that scene when the giant face is attacking her and she is pinned to the bed i feel like there wasn't enough communication with the actors as to what was going to be happening yeah. in the cgi you're right yeah. they weren't reacting the way you would if a giant face was like Rah! they were just kind of like oh no nell's pinned to the bed we gotta get her out not only that the face takes it a step further because it spits out multiple ghost hands that are attacking them too yeah it's ghost 
hands that are made of demons. The actors were just not yeah. reacting correctly, yeah. I didn't think. I was like, you guys are not scared enough. <laughs> yeah. for, like, this is What's one of those moments yeah. where like in real life, if you saw this, you just scream until you died. Yeah. What is happening? Especially because they were still didn't believe her in that moment. And they were like, oh, it is real. Like officially yeah. it's real. And why aren't you? I don't know. It's like just one note, you guys, to tell the actors like something really scary is coming from the ceiling. We haven't figured it all out in post yet, but like <laughs> be real scared. Yeah, I think I remember this from the way it was marketed, but I thought one of the things that this movie thought it was doing that was extremely clever and I thought that audiences would be blown away by it is the idea of the objects in the house itself being turned into faces like the windows becoming eyes that look creepy oh, yeah. at her. Because I remember that being like such a big like, oh, it's never been done like this where the literal house is coming to life like yeah. in a movie before. And again, it kind of came off goofy, but Again, the kid cherub stuff freaked mm-hmm. me the fuck out. So I could see how visually it's creepy for a kid. But and that's the weird thing. Like this movie at parts of it felt almost like it was trying to be more of a kinder trauma horror movie and less than a straight up mm-hmm. horror movie. But then you have those aspects, Shelby, like you've brought up a couple times of what actually happened to the children. Why are these yeah. weird things with Nell being the wife now and also the mother like on top of that and yeah. we get to like owen wilson talking shit and then getting his head like beheaded by the stone lion. oh that's the best kill ever that i just think it's hilarious yeah spoiler oh yeah. my god <laughs> everyone loves a good decapitation yeah i know the bones in the fireplace that's the thing it's like so he was burning them in the fireplace so what would we sit around as was wife there watching him burn yeah. children in the fireplace the whole house like, would smell like barbecue right like what the fuck the whole, yeah exactly bodies in just a traditional fireplace even though it's huge it would take a long time we just toss them in there yeah. i don't know it's just there's so many unanswered questions but so many things that are suggested that are like really scary and dark but they never say it out loud yeah well and and all this because the final point at least as far as scenes go in this movie i don't quite understand how she defeated the ghost yeah i have that written down with what exactly happens at the end she just said hey not on my watch buddy yeah i think (laughs) what it's trying to convey is that she taunts the ghost of crane into like flying directly at her and she's standing in front of the like gates of hell door. So his ghost and the door judges him. slams her into the gates of hell door. And then he mm-hmm. somehow gets cast off into the netherworld. And that somehow yeah. frees the ghost then of all the children's spirits. I don't know. But he built the door. Yeah. Yeah. Also, correct. he is the house. He is yes, the house. Also yeah. correct. So what? no idea. She mentions that she needs to lead him to the door at some point. Forgot exactly where exactly she even figured that one out. Or if she just pulled that yeah. out of her ass. All she does to like get this ghost who can control again the fucking giant house itself is she basically turns in a Dom Toretto from Fast and the Furious and gives him a giant <laughs> speech about family, and a, this is about family. 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 That causes the ghost to get enraged enough to literally, like, throw itself into hell. It's almost like the <laughs> demons in the door were like, you know what, lady, you do have a yeah. point, and, like, we are going to take him. It's like she was the demon therapist, and they were like, oh, my God, yeah, he does belong in hell. Let's get him. So that is the other story twist in this adaptation. As we find out, Nell is 
somehow dot 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 the like great granddaughter of Hugh Crane. Sure, whatever. And that's why her mom had the necklace. Yeah, and that's why Liam Neeson that's actually didn't painting. call her. Someone else called her, which was the house itself for yeah, the like ghost children. S- the house called her or something. Yeah. Okay, did I miss it or did they ever explain? Because from what they set up is all the children died, all of them. Yeah. As far as we know, yeah. How did a daughter or a, a, some sort of child get out to have a granddaughter? Correct. And also, if we're supposed to believe he had multiple wives, but we know one of them definitely committed suicide and hung herself in the atrium. Yes. Yeah. None of that gets explained. It's just all these weird circuitous dot dot dots to get us to like Nell's related. That's the other scene that also creeped me out a little bit was when she's the only one seeing the hanging body in that Mm, garden. Even in this adaptation, the spiral staircase itself is pretty on point compared to all the other adaptations. But yeah, that was a generally unsettling moment too, seeing the hanging body. The spiral staircase scene is still pretty harrowing. And I think what makes it even more so is, like we've been saying, the sets are all massive. So this spiral staircase is now fucking 90 feet in the air and falling apart and it's like this giant double helix spiral staircase now like it's just so much more harrowing because it's so much bigger 90s extreme yeah and it was practical we saw the screw actually turning and coming out and i don't know all of that was yeah yeah, like you said harrowing is perfect term for that yeah after all that scene too when the shoe drops right i do love that liam neeson Mm -hmm. does go full dark man for a minute just what? What did you say? Just like fucking screaming. <laughs> I just remembered the scene where Liam Neeson gets attacked by the pond statue. Yes, uh-huh. the pond statue. And he just like reaches out his hand and grabs yeah. him. That was goofy. <laughs> and, as then, hell. and then yeah. the pond turns into blood because of like starts of vomiting blood. <laughs> I guess because of the probably the pumping mechanism, but it was it looked like fruit punch. It, it didn't was, even look like yeah. blood. Yeah. But then when he comes out, he has blood smeared on his face. And it's like, we just saw it. That's not the same blood that came out of that mouth. No. And then it's implied he still doesn't believe that the house is haunted, even after that happens to him. How do you not walk back in and you're not like, I just got grabbed by a fucking statue that came to life and it tried to drown me. And then there was blood and we got to get out of here, guys. Yeah. For some reason, I really thought. At least one or two other characters bit it in this movie, not just Owen Wilson. Me too. I remembered when Owen Wilson died. I was like, man, I remember him dying because his death was amazing, phenomenal, no notes. <laughs> and I was like, I don't remember what happens to the other two because I could have sworn. I don't know why I remembered them dying or at least one of them. I agree. I was fully expecting at least Neeson to bite it and then maybe yes, Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Again, a weird Mandela effect. I swore like I remember my friends talking about this movie on the playground and talking about Theo dying. Horrific, spooky death, too. I swear I remembered someone else dying because I was like, I cannot remember how they died. Then at the end, I was like, oh, I guess I just remembered wrong. I can't believe it. Yeah, for a dangerous house. Just Owen Wilson. Just Owen Wilson. And it's implied that it wouldn't have happened if he didn't rip up the painting and talk shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If he didn't threaten to burn the house down. karmic retribution. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, um... Let's get into the production of this movie, because like I said, it's kind of fucking bug nuts. And a point I want to make, and this goes into the Netflix production. Again, at the beginning of this movie, I assumed that Flanagan completely ignored this adaptation, only focused on Mm -hmm. the book, only focused on the original 1963. But between Nell staying in the Red Room and her whole this is about family speech that she shouts. Family, family, 
at Crane's Coast. It makes me wonder if he did draw inspirations from this movie, too, because the Netflix show is all about family. The Netflix show, like, pounds you over the head about the Red Room. Again, the Red Room in the book, there was no Red Room. Symbolically, Theo's room gets drenched in blood in the book, but, like, otherwise, there was no Red Room. I don't think there was a Red Room in the 1963 adaptation either. I don't think there was. That scene in the book of the blood drenching Theo's room, they kept that out of the movie because, I mean, 1963 and it's black and white. (laughs) Just would have been chocolate syrup. Yeah. So I want to say that the 1999 movie, without this, we wouldn't have had the Red Room plot point that (laughs) is the main plot point. I would love to ask Mike Flanagan Flanagan about that because I doubt anyone has been like, so were you inspired by the 1999 version? Yes. Like, I just feel like no one's asked him that because I haven't seen that anyway. Well. If you uh, happen to, to bump into him, wink, 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 you should ask him yeah. just out of curiosity. I definitely will. And maybe one of our listeners will like message us later and be like, no, there was a red room. You're an idiot. But I don't remember any of the colored rooms specifically being red in the book. And I remember Googling this. I think there's like a pink, a blue and a green room or something like that and a yellow room. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember there ever being a red room even stated in the 63 movie adaptation. So. I don't know. Maybe the Red Room came from this movie. <laughs> Imagine. That would be amazing. I would love that. I hope that's true. I hope I get to ask yes, him someday. That would be I hope that amazing. True. Hell yeah. All right, cool. Well, uh, the very early beginnings of this project, because again, this is the second adaptation of this. By the way, this is going to be me sitting back and letting you two talk about it because you both have brought up wild things about this production. So Wes Craven was originally developing a remake in the early 90s for Dimension Films, and he abandoned the idea to instead do Scream. So it was free for grabs. Yeah, good choice. In 1996, Steven Spielberg pitched Stephen King on the idea of them collaborating on a Haunted House movie because they had both wanted to do Haunted House movies and just hadn't gotten around to that yet, right? This was going to be one of the flagship projects for... DreamWorks Pictures, which had just formed in 1994. So they kind of decided to use the 63 adaptation directed by Robert Wise as the foundation for the project because they were both huge fans of that, which is weird that they were like, let's use this as a framework because they didn't have the rights to this. Yeah. The production studio like didn't have the rights to this. It was just kind of like, eh, why not? We'll just fucking let's just do it. We're the two Stevens. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get away with this. It's fine. Pretty much. (laughs) They ended up shelving it. Due to creative differences, right? Spielberg, as you'd figure, wanted more action sequences and thrills. King wanted it to be creepier and slower and just more horror. After the project went into turnaround, King bought the rights for what had been developed. Yes. And he started talking to director Mick Garris and producer Mark Carliner, who had done The Stand and The Shining TV miniseries. And then around 1999, this is when Stephen King was hit by a car that summer. By a van. Yeah, by the van, exactly. Famously, he was zonked out of his mind on painkillers. That's when he wrote Dreamcatcher. But he was also reworking all of this material into what eventually filmed in the year 2000 and released in 2002 as Rose Rose Red. My favorite horror miniseries ever. I didn't know there was a connection at all. Uh-huh. I didn't know that either. I was blown away when I found that out. Yeah. Again, just like this version of The Haunting, Rose Red is one of those weird nostalgia things from my, my childhood. I remember the commercials for Rose Red. Yeah. Was it wasn't on ABC. This was one of the many like 
TV miniseries. Of yeah, that you can't miss. Stephen King presents an all original. It was ABC. A- it was ABC. Okay. And there was a viral campaign beforehand where Stephen King co-wrote a diary called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer that came out beforehand. And it was like some of the, like not first viral marketing, but I remember getting The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. There was like a website and everything. And it was, we've published this diary of this woman who lived in this haunted house in Seattle. And I was all about it. Had no idea there was going to be a miniseries coming out. Then it did come out because children out there, the internet age, we didn't have information as quickly no. as we do now. <laughs> yeah. And I literally found this book at Costco or something. It was like a spooky house book. And they kind of made it seem like it was real. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm sure looking back now, if I found my old copy, it definitely was like, this isn't real. But little me was like, it's real. So they had this whole viral thing where like you could find out about the ghost of Ellen Rimbauer before you saw the miniseries and like they were in Ellen Rimbauer's house. Yeah. Also one of my favorite Stephen King cameos in one of his works when he he's a pizza man and it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing one of the nights of that when it was on, but did not catch mm-hmm. the other two nights. I think it was like a three part thing. Yeah. It was only three. I think. Yeah. I need to go mm-hmm. back and like rewatch that out of curiosity. Yeah. Same. Again, I had no idea that I had any ties to the haunting. And as soon as you said the yep. words rose red, Went back to 2002 and seeing those commercials. So that's where the initial version there kind of stalls out, right? So now let's take a parallel step back. Minority Report was originally (laughs) intended to be a direct sequel to Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall, because they're both Philip K. Dick stories. Yeah, they're both Philip K. Dick, but still. Schwarzenegger was going to come back, still playing the same character, just a new story. Okay. And it was intended to be Jan de Bont's directorial debut because he started as a cinematographer. And specifically, he was Paul Verhoeven's cinematographer on all of his main Dutch era early stuff. So mm-hmm. it was initially going to be a project for him. And again, Jan de Bont, cinematographer, went on to direct. Aside from Paul Verhoeven's early Dutch stuff like Turkish Delight and The Fourth Man in Flesh and Blood. He also did that crazy movie, Roar, that's about Tippi Hedren's family living with 70 fucking lions and tigers. Oh, yeah. And apparently yeah. Jan de Bont got scalped while making that movie. <gasps> what? <laughs> yeah. He got <laughs> by a fucking tiger or something. He also shot Cujo, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Flatliners, which we just covered recently. Hell yeah. That's not going to be the last Flatliners reference here. And then Basic Instinct, right? And then he shifts into directing. So he makes Speed, Twister, Speed 2, Cruise Control. And then (laughs) after The Haunting, he makes Lara Croft, colon, Tomb Raider, hyphen, The Cradle of Life, right? And he hasn't directed anything since. But anyway, Carol Co. Pictures that did the original Total Recall, they went fucking bankrupt in 95, famously. Just the whole thing fucking imploded. And so the rights for Minority Report ended up going to Miramax in 97. And it was completely retooled as a standalone thing. It didn't have any connections to the Paul Verhoeven Schwarzenegger movie at that point. That script then somehow found its way into Tom Cruise's hands. And he took it to Spielberg because the two of them were buds. They met on Risky Business. They had been trying to make a movie together for over a decade. Spielberg was originally supposed to direct Rain Man and that didn't happen. Oh, I didn't know that. So they have been trying to find something that they could make together for a long time. 
And it just so happened, this is a fucking cool script. Steven, check it out. Yo, Steve, check this out. In 1998, Minority Report was officially announced as this major collaboration between DreamWorks and Amblin, right? Both of Spielberg's companies. Fox, Cruise Wagner Productions, and Jan DeBont's company, Blue Tulip. This sounds like there's starting to be too many cooks in the kitchen. Correct. Already. (laughs) Correct. Okay. Pause here. Again, the original attempt with Steven Spielberg and Stephen King stalled out. King took it and turned it into Rose Red. In 98, Spielberg brought in this new screenwriter named David Self. And I say new because to this point, none of his scripts actually reached production. This guy had been writing screenplays for like a decade and none of them had been made. He had primarily been making like these original political thrillers and screen adaptations of historical fiction and nonfiction books. It was just all shit like a terrorist attack on the White House, (laughs) a military drama about Kuwait. Anything Gerard Butler would be now. (laughs) The Battle of Thermopylae told from the viewpoint of one of the Spartans. (laughs) Right? It was like that kind of shit. It's like coffee table John Grisham novels that Uh our parents read. (laughs) Right? So at this point, he was in the middle of writing a script called 13 Days which is this kind of sort of fictional account of the Kennedy administration reacting Uh, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Isn't that fucking Kevin Costner in that one? Eventually, yes. It is. Yeah. So he's got this script. At this point, Lawrence Kasdan, the fucking writer of Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Big Chill... And the fucking director of Stephen King's Dreamcatcher, by the way. Womp womp. (laughs) He had been shepherding this script because he wanted to direct 13 Days. Mm -hmm. He decided he no longer wanted to direct it. He took it to Spielberg. And Spielberg was like, huh, I like this. I might want to direct this. And then he was like, no, actually, I don't want to direct this. But David Self, I want you to come with me. I have this fucking haunted house movie that I want you to write instead. I need like a chart with yarn right now. Yeah, right. (laughs) So again, this is a dude who had just been writing like political thrillers, none of which had been made. Yeah. And Spielberg was like, you seem like the perfect person to write my haunted house movie. Okay. (laughs) Based off of a masterpiece horror fiction. Exactly. Right. That has transcended decades. Yeah. 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 And so eventually... 13 Days obviously got made in like 2002 with Kevin Costner. Like you said, it was directed by Roger Donaldson, which this comes up in our Sinister episode. Listen to that because I mentioned this exact thing there. Didn't realize it connected in with this whole story. So David Self ends up writing the fucking screenplay for this movie. Ultimately, his only other credits, it's The Haunting, 13 Days. He does write Road to Perdition which that was nominated for Oscars and some other stuff. Yeah, that's a positive one. And then he does the remake of The Wolfman in 2010 with Benicio Del Toro. That's it. That's his only screenplay credits that have actually come to fruition. His screenplay was then heavily rewritten by novelist Michael Tolkien, who wrote The Player, this fucking awesome neo-noir called Deep Cover with Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum. And he had just written Deep Impact which was the other asteroid hits the earth fucking big movie movie. from like the year before this, right? The more serious, darker, 
Whereas Armageddon yeah. was the fun one. Yeah, yeah. Tolkien also did uncredited rewrites on the Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004, which one of these days we're going to cover. And our favorite, the fucking 2004 Thomas Shoes Are Foot Prisons Jane <laughs> Punisher movie. Yeah. So anyway, this script went through all these crazy permutations. And like you said, too many cooks. Just way too many people putting their fingers on it. Way too many, like, revisionist versions of this. How the fuck did DeBond get involved then? So here's where it all kind of comes together. And this is a fucking time discrepancy that because I'm looking this shit up on the internet and I'm not talking to these people, I don't think this fits. But I have a hunch. So allegedly, Spielberg <laughs> approached Yandabont about swapping Minority Report for The Haunting. And supposedly it was while DeBont was in post-production on Twister. Now, I call bullshit okay. on that because that would have been late 1995, early 1996, because Twister was a summer of 96 movie. The Minority Report script that Cruz brought to Spielberg's attention wasn't even written until 97. Okay. My hunch is, I think this happened, but I think it happened while DeBont was on post-production for Speed 2. And was just way in over his head. Holy shit. Ah, what the fuck is happening with this movie? <laughs> and Spielberg was just like, hey, how about I really want to direct Minority Report a lot? How about? So I just have this Haunted House movie that's already set up at my shingle. You can just walk right onto that. You want to do that? And DeBont was just like, sure, I guess. Fine. And even then, he was ambivalent about the script being based off the 63 movie because he wanted to do a more faithful version of the Shirley Jackson novel. He missed the point from both points. Yeah. From the beginning, we have a screenwriter who does not care about horror, who has no background in horror, writing the script. Dude, how the fuck does anything get made in Hollywood that's good? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no idea. Now we also have a director who has no interest in making this fucking movie. And we have Steven Spielberg, who's strong-arming all these pieces into place to get this fucking movie made. But doesn't want to do the actual, like, directing. But he it. doesn't want to direct it, right? Yeah. He did at one point in time, but now is like, no, fuck it, I have other shit going on. Because this also would have been right when Saving Private Ryan was just coming out. So maybe he was like, I don't want to follow up one of the most important war movies of the modern era that won Oscars with this fucking horror movie i don't know i don't know what changed his mind other than like maybe that maybe just he genuinely was like oh this script's kind of bullshit but fuck it we need to get it made at this point sunk cost i don't know yeah but yeah we have a screenwriter who doesn't give a fuck we have a director who doesn't give a fuck nobody can agree on what the vision for this thing is and again spielberg is just trying to shove the thing through and making decisions for everybody too Whoa. bringing jerry goldsmith in which he is a legendary composer right? He's 18 Oscar nominations. He won for The Omen, which we've mentioned on the show. He scored The Sand Pebbles, which we just brought up on the last episode because Robert Wise, who directed the first movie, directed this one. Planet of the Apes, Patton, The Burbs, which we've covered on the show, Chinatown, Alien, Star Trek, Poltergeist, which we have covered, Gremlins, which we have covered, The Mummy, which we've been talking about, right? He does the Gremlin rag, that great, yeah. great theme from Gremlins. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so even Jerry Goldsmith was not Yandabont's choice for composer. Steven Spielberg was just like, yo, he's doing it, right? Which Spielberg had a weird habit of hiring Goldsmith for 
other people's movies. Here's my boy. Here you go. Yeah, right? Production started in late 1998. This is really? a summer of 1999 movie. Holy shit. Production started yeah. in late 1998 and Lord. ended in April, just three months before its release. Oh, fuck. So the CG is even better than I thought because it was also rushed. <laughs> yes, right? Like, it's like super rushed. Well, you're right with that context because you brought this up earlier. Uh, Despite the CG kind of being dated and clowny in that regard, it still does look better than some of the more modern Marvel movies we've seen the last couple of years. The, there's particular moments like the glass breaking and then coming back in. I thought the was like, really glass, well yeah. done for the time, yeah. you know, and like there's little stuff where I was like, wow, OK, yeah. The mansion itself, the Hill House, all the exteriors are this actual Victorian mansion called Harlaxton Manor in England. It is owned by the University of Indiana. In England? What? Our Indiana? Or is there- Our Indiana, yeah. It's where they send all of their study abroad students to live. It's horrifying looking. I couldn't live there. Uh-huh. It's a fucking nightmare to look at, right? It looks sinister. Yeah. It looks evil. And it's so gaudy and overdone. All yeah. these extra weird bits yes. and pieces of things that are all just glued onto this house. It is nuts. Like The house itself has a lot of built-in character, which is really cool. That big giant building is the gate separate from the house. Yeah. There's also just, this is overabundance of house yeah. and extravagance. Yeah. Uh-huh. I actually thought that in the ending scene or when they're kind of looking around a little more at the house and I was like, this has to be CG, but the CG wasn't good enough to make this look this real. Yeah, no. And I was like, I guess that's all house. That's nuts. The Ooh. exteriors, all real. They did use the great hall of this manor for like the games room. Mm-hmm. And then the kitchen scenes were actually shot at a completely different castle called Belvoir Castle. But like we've mentioned, just like the original movie, all of the interiors are sets otherwise. Huge, elaborate sets. That's crazy. Beautiful yeah. set. The only one who came to play was the set designers. Cause- uh-huh. So the art director for this movie is Eugenio Zanetti, who we mentioned on our Flatliners episode, which is also why that movie is so production designed to hell with giant gothic face statues sticking out of things and like crazy lighting and shit. He did Flatliners, Last Action Hero, Restoration, which he won a fucking art direction Oscar for. But these sets cost 10 to $13 million to build. And they were all built in this huge dome-shaped hangar that's in Long Beach, California. It's where the like Howard Hughes H4 Hercules, the Spruce Goose, This huge, massive plane was parked in this dome-shaped hangar. So that's where they built the sets, because none of the existing studio space in California had the ceiling height that they needed to film everything. That's the thing. It was the height is what really sold the grandeur, is the height of everything. Yeah. And when we were actually out Mm -hmm. in California, we like met you for lunch. We had just gone to one of the studio tours. It was the Warner Brothers studio tour, and they made a huge deal of this one particular soundstage is the tallest soundstage in North America, because at some point in time, they like blew the roof off and expanded it. But even then, this is so much bigger than that when you actually see how tall these sets are. So it's mind boggling. But that's where a huge chunk of $80 million for the budget 
10 to 13 went to just the sets. Oh, yeah. You, and you can see it. And that's with all these big stars taking their cut. That's a lot for sets. Mm-hmm. Just like the original film, they recorded all these creaks and moans. They were all pre-recorded, and they actually played them live for the actors to react to while they were filming. Oh, that's fun. So none of that's post. That's fun. I like that. The movie initially started with legendary six-time Oscar-nominated cinematographer Caleb Deschanel. Yes, father of Emily and Zoe Deschanel. Oh my god. This guy worked on George Lucas's THX 1138, Coppola's The Godfather oh god. and Apocalypse Now. John Cassavetes to go back to my fucking wild recommendation of his son's movie. He worked on yeah. A Woman Under the Influence. He worked on Hal Ashby's Being There, Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff, Barry Levinson's The Natural, David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Caleb Deschanel is a really, really super well-regarded cinematographer. He had worked with Mm -hmm. all the best in the business. He fucking bailed after the first week of this production. It was just like, cool, (laughs) bye, I'm out, done. After a week, Carl Walter Lindenlaub stepped in to replace him. He's the guy who shot a bunch of Emmerich stuff. He shot Universal Soldier, Stargate, Independence Day. He replaced Deschanel on this. And again, going back to Spielberg, there were tons of reshoots. Again, this movie finished production in April, and it came out in July, and there were still reshoots. I don't reshoots. know how they did that. That's insane. That's yeah. insane. Spielberg himself did one of the reshoots because DeBont was deep in post trying to get it done. Spielberg literally came and did one of the reshoots himself. They also shot a completely new ending to the movie literally a month before the film's release. They shot a new ending entirely in late May, and this came out early July. The fuck? What was the original ending? What was the original ending? Did not find anything about that. I don't have a physical copy of this. Which, by the way, fucking Scream Factory, like, literally just put this out on 4K. So, like, I'm I'm curious if there's anything on there, but I've not seen any deleted scenes because I don't own a physical copy of this. So, I'm not sure. I don't know what the original version was. Maybe that's the version where Theo also dies, and maybe that's where the Mandela maybe effect we... we yeah, it. we no. shifted into the new reality where this ending is yeah. the ending we got. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Legendary. I keep saying legendary. Well-regarded. All these big people were involved with this. That's why this was such a huge deal, because this was... One of the most well-regarded horror movies, even in the late 90s, being remade, and then they had all these big to-do people on it, right? So, Phil Tippett, who was one of the OG ILM guys who worked on all the fucking Star Wars movies, Dragon Slayer, Robocop, Willow, Jurassic Park, Starship Troopers, like, dude won Oscars. He's doing the visual effects through his new company. But like we mentioned, three months of turnaround, you gotta get this done, bro. That's all he had to like talk about a fucking crazy rush. And this was like a flagship for DreamWorks, right? Yes. Because DreamWorks uh-huh. was only a few years old at this point, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. This was one of their big movies for the year. Okay. During the entire production, they were using the original novel's full title, The Haunting of Hill House. But they decided at the last minute that they needed to just shorten it to The Haunting because they didn't want people to be confused with another. 1999 remake of a 1959 movie, House on Haunted Hill, which actually has nothing to do with the Shirley Jackson story. Was it based at all off of? No. Loosely based off of? That's what I'm saying. The William Castle original 1959 movie literally came out 
in February of 59, Shirley Jackson's book came out sometime in 59. Like they literally just happened to be very similarly titled and have kind of a similar premise. Um, It is just one of those wild volcano Dante's Peak, Deep Impact Armageddon. Last of Us and Girl with All the Gifts. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So after all this shit, after Spielberg muscled this entire fucking thing through to the finish line, he apparently was like, this fucking sucks. Take my name off of it. <laughs> Way to go, Stevie. Entirely. Was just like, Way to go, Stevie. I don't want my name on this at all. Take it off. <laughs> oh, man. Just what the fuck. So anyway, ultimately, yeah. Movie comes out in late July, 1999. I guess when you make Jaws, you can just do that shit. Uh-huh. Yeah, they let you just do that. So the movie opened at number one earning $33 million in its opening weekend. This shows you just how we used to be a proper country. (laughs) The movie beat Inspector Gadget, American Pie, and Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. The following weekend, it dropped to number four behind Runaway Bride, Blair Witch Project, and Deep Blue Sea. What a fucking summer. 1999. What a weekend that was. Right. and Deep Lucy alone. All of those movies came out within like a calendar week of each other. Weekend to weekend. That's crazy. That's nuts. Because those are all cable staples. They were in every fucking DVD bin. 90s bangers. That you would go to. Everyone's seen all of them. Yeah. Uh Yeah, definitely. Derek, like you mentioned, this movie made almost $180 million worldwide. It was a hit. It was a huge hit. Turned profit. It is one of the very rare instances of Roger Ebert actually giving a horror movie a positive review. No. Are you fucking kidding me? He gave this one. Are you kidding me? He liked the sets and the production design and the sound design. He was like, the script's no good. The performances are terrible, but this is a visual feast. You should definitely go and see. I mean, it is a visual I, feast. It is visual feast. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Right? Like, there you go. <laughs> he hated horror movies. That's yeah. wild. Uh-huh. Of course, this is the one that he gives like a positive right? review to. Granted, the Razzie Awards are kind of just whatever, but yeah, but I saw that this was nominated for a bunch of those. I saw it was nominated for like worst movie. So I had two final points I wanted to touch on, and this is grounding us back to well, first off, actually, Shelby, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned that like there was something about the cast that you wanted to bring up, how like they defeated the curse in a way of like this being such like a cursed production and their careers where they went from here. The main people, yeah, I just feel like. You know, as horror fans, all of us, unfortunately, what happens in a lot of, you know, huge horror movies is there are actors who do go on to have careers, but horror movies aren't necessarily movie star makers, you know, and it's pretty often that you see like most of the cast anyway, aside from like a Jennifer Aniston and Leprechaun, you know, who like breaks out and becomes this huge star. I just did think it was interesting. I mean, it's not quite the same because... So many of these people already had careers. Luke Wilson was near the beginning of his career, but he's still done stuff. But I just thought it was interesting that to go back and see this and be like, oh, all of these people are still going strong Mm -hmm. and still very recognizable for the most part, the main cast anyway. And I just thought that was really interesting. Well, like Liam Neeson survived the one-two punch of this and Phantom Menace in the same year. So I know this was during that rough patch in his career where... He had come out of 
a lot of his initial first wave of big stuff like Dark Man, that was, you know, a big hit, Schindler's List, Rob Roy, stuff like mm-hmm. that. This was kind of on a weird slump, and this was before the like Liam Neeson is an old badass wave yeah. of Taken and all those movies kind of in the mid to late 2000s. So it is in this weird slump for him. But Catherine Zeta-Jones, this was her popping off because she was in mm-hmm. Mask of Zorro just before Mask this, fucking Entrapment. Mm-hmm. She dips beneath the lasers. She was in a bunch of stuff right around this time. Owen Wilson was also like popping off right about now because he had just come out with the first few Wes Anderson movies. Lily Taylor had been around for a while, but yeah, she's the she m- least well-known person. But I kind of like that she is still the main character of this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've always liked her a lot as an actress. I do too. She's in yeah. a bunch of really good shit. Like, I love her in Six Feet Under. She's fucking great in this Abel Ferrara vampire movie called The Addiction. But she was arguably the lead in the Conjuring movie that set off that whole thing. Yeah, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. She's been in all kinds of shit. Her whole career is super interesting, how she floated between very indie stuff like I Shot Andy Warhol to this big Mm -hmm. mega studio movie. But yeah, to your point, Shelby, like it is interesting that everybody kind of still survived. And I think it was just because this movie was a financial hit. You know, there wasn't really any reason to like bury any of these people Mm-hmm. Because at least this movie still made money, so whatever. Yeah. I feel know. like I haven't heard much from Catherine Zeta-Jones more recently. She's semi-retired. Yeah, like Owen Wilson went through a period of time, I think he was battling mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. But he's at least reappeared in the Loki TV show. and Yeah, he's back to doing stuff again. Well, Catherine Zeta-Jones, she just did uh, Wednesday. Yeah. And she was Morticia Adams. Oh, she, she was. You're right. Yeah. And she also did a whole National Treasure show on Disney. I have not seen it, but she's like the main character gotcha. in this National Treasure show. I didn't know that either. Show. But I think hers was Michael Douglas. You know, he had cancer. Yeah. He had throat oh, cancer. Oh, that's right. I think she took some time yeah. away. She was semi-retired for a few years, mm-hmm. more than a few years. But yeah. she had been popping up in like Soderbergh stuff pretty regularly. And she's kind of back into doing things again now. I wish she would make another movie with Soderbergh now that he's really on a tear. So yeah, everybody in this kind of came out unscathed. Yonda Bont's really the one who ate it the most because the only yeah. other thing he directed was yeah. the second fucking Tomb Raider movie. You know, he still works as a cinematographer every once in a while, but I think he's the one that probably got the shit into the stick the hardest. Yeah, Him and David Self, the screenwriter, they're both the ones that were pulled into yeah, this David reluctantly, Self. and they're both yeah. the ones that kind of have just but since. So One final point I have, and then the two other like talking points. Final point is, it was a breath of fresh air, despite however much of a mess this movie is. Again, I still found it insanely entertaining and a visual feast, like Ebert said. But I do appreciate that this adaptation over the Netflix show and over the original movie is all about the house being a spooky haunted house, whereas the book and other adaptations were way more concerned about the interpersonal relationships. This movie gave no fucks about the interpersonal relationships. And it was way more about like, this is an evil fucking house. And it was refreshing to just have a ghost that doesn't represent trauma or some bullshit like that. Though this is an evil ghost that wants to keep Nell as his bride. I mean, he killed a bunch of kids and it wasn't even representative of anything. They're like, I don't know, he killed a bunch of kids. That's why he's evil. House is haunted. You know, even the Netflix show does this. What is an actual ghost? Is a ghost a memory? Is a ghost blah, blah, blah? No, a ghost is a fucking ghost in this movie. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. It gets dragged to hell at the end. It's evil. That's all you need to know. Like, none of this trauma family bullshit. I mean, family, like, in a fast and furious sense. 
none of this trauma bullshit. It's a ghost. It's evil. It's here. That was refreshing. Yeah. My other two points, and I'm going to tap into a vein we brought up on the last episode on the original 1963 movie. You mentioned, Aaron, that this movie, again, does lead a thousand percent into the supernatural aspect, whereas 1963 mm-hmm. more plays around with the idea of, is it all in Nell's head? Yeah. I just wanted to bring that up again because you mentioned reassess that after you watch this, and I have reassessed it, and you just got my point. I appreciate that this will lead a thousand percent into <laughs> goofy supernatural bullshit. Yeah. The other thing I will think about, and this is something that maybe you two can also like talk a little bit about, is... When I was thinking about the movie leaning all the way into the supernatural, I started also thinking about another question or point, and I wanted to get your two opinions on this. If this movie wasn't called The Haunting, if this movie wasn't treated as a loose remake of the 1963 movie, had nothing to do with Hill House. Would it have done better? Well, not even would it have done better. Would this movie now have an endearing cult status in the same way that 13 Ghosts now does? Because I would argue 13 Ghosts is just as much of a mess. House on Haunted Hill from 1999, which is actually kind of fun in a ridiculous way. Just as much as a mess. But like everyone talks positively nowadays about 13 Ghosts, but there are still people, even a little section of horror twitter and stuff that shits on this movie and i'm of the opinion just like halloween three season the witch take out the haunting of hill house legacy and just make this its own thing i think it would have that cult status right along the lines as 13 ghosts i think if it had if it had been called the house of crane yeah something like that yeah i agree what about you aaron like what do you think Mm. dude even ghost ship even fucking ghost ship ghost ship has like an endearing cult status now whereas this movie doesn't i don't understand that because this movie is on the same level as ghost ship (laughs) so i think it would probably be held in higher regard i agree this movie was a big financial hit tons of people saw it i mean we're all three talking about how we saw it when we were young I think, though, there's still a few things that hold this movie back from some of the, like, weird cult nostalgia love that a lot of those other movies you mentioned. Again, there's not a lot of practical, like, cool special effects. There's really only one fucking rad death scene. True. There's not really a lot of super mega horror until the very end end to use a word that sam raimi coined it's just not as spook a blast as a lot of those other movies you know i think if it were not called the haunting and it was not a remake of the haunting based on the haunting of hill house by shirley jackson yes i think it probably would be held in higher regard but it still does not have the same x factors that some of those other movies from the same time have the house on haunted hill 1999 the william malone movie starring fucking corky romano uh god chris Chris right that movie is fucking ridiculous the premise is just as goofy the production design is also fucking buck wild crazy in that movie too but that movie also has wild gore Lots of practical effects showcase stuff. I need to go watch House on Haunted Hill. I love that movie. All of the performances are like super big and over the top. Jeffrey Rush is the millionaire guy who invited everybody to his haunted mansion to stay the night and he's going to give his fortune. And he's cartoonishly evil. But it's like Jeffrey Wright from Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey Rush from House on Haunted Hill and Jeffrey Rush from Mystery Men. Same character. I don't see a difference. These pictures are the same. <laughs> okay. I've it's that level of ridiculous. Oh yeah. God. Okay. So I, I think the movie would be held in higher regard, but it's still 
lacks some of the weird shit that those other movies have that help them pop a little bit more. But I think this movie, again, would be held in higher regard because it was just such a big hit. Everybody saw it. Yeah. It was such a tentpole thing. But I also don't think it would be a huge tentpole thing that everybody went and saw that made a bunch of money if it wasn't based on The Haunting of Hill House. So that's the chicken and egg thing about this. I don't think you can have one without the other. Yeah, and I just appreciate the talking point because that's just something I've kind of been stewing in my head since watching this movie. Take away The Haunting of Hill House aspect. What would the status of this movie now be? I'm like you, Shelby, now. This is a blast of a movie. This is entertaining. This is a movie I'm not watching to watch a good movie. This is a movie I'm watching to have fun. Right. And two, to play the what if game, think about the entire story I just told you about the production. What if Wes Craven had directed a remake of this in 1993? Oh, God, that would have been amazing. It really would have. What if... Spielberg had directed this in 1999. Yeah, I want to go to the dimension where Spielberg and King got together and actually did it. For real, yes. And what would that look like? Uh I can't even imagine it, honestly. Yeah, there's lots of what ifs in this that could have been. Mm -hmm. And like, arguably, those might have been better movies. But this is what we got. This is what we got. And it's wild and fun and weird for what it is. And it's also like an interesting object lesson. For filmmakers and writers in Hollywood to be like, "Mm, this is what happens when there are too many cooks in the kitchen, like we've said. We have a strong arm producer who has a history of really grabbing the reins of productions and fucking uh, controlling them in that Spielberg way. And what happens when you get a lot of people on who like aren't passionate about making this project? You know, this is kind Mm -hmm. of a good example for all of that. So, yeah, this was a lot of fun because this very much started off as. Shelby wants to watch what? <laughs> to like, okay, this is like a great discussion piece for this show specifically. And us talking about horror and horror movies and pop culture and why we're drawn to them and how this affected us and why certain movies end up the way they do. And just the giant fucking spider web. I mean, how many movies over the course of talking about this one have I mentioned tonight that we have already covered on our show right so many things all touch all these other things so like this was a fascinating thing to dig into and i really want people to go watch this movie after this if they haven't seen it already just to see like what the fuck we're talking about especially if you've watched the original and even the mike flanagan show because this is in a whole nother planet from uh-huh. those two adaptations. Yeah. yeah. But again, I, I really am fascinated if Mike Flanagan took anything from this movie when developing the Netflix show. We got to find out. We got to find out. We got to tweet at him or something. So, <laughs> all right, cool. Well, yeah, that is it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. Thank you, Shelby, for not only coming on, but bringing this episode up and inspiring our like whole Absolutely. Like, Hill Hell House yeah. content we've been putting out. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, the Hill House summer is thanks to you. So yeah. this was a lot of fun. I was kind of insistent too. I was like, come on, let's watch. Yeah, it. hell yeah. <laughs> Not only do we need to get you on for the found footage stuff, but now I'm thinking, okay, when we do the House on Haunted Hill 1999 remake, when we do go ship, like, let's get Shelby on for this, dude. Yeah, I can be your guys 99 to 2005. Hey, you, maybe you could come on at the same time as my sister-in-law, Lauren, because she goes to bat for uh, Ott's Horror all the time. Yeah. So. 
This was all of yeah. our high school stuff that yeah. you were covering yeah, right there. Absolutely. That's why. There's definitely just a special place in my heart for it. Like I said, this movie is the first one I saw in theaters. I, I can't help it. I can't help it. And I mean, that alone right there is a main reason like why you wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Very first horror movie, no matter how good or not it is critically, like that's kind of a special moment. It sticks with you. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, I looked it up and Rose Red, I wasn't sure if it was a huge hit. It was a huge yeah. hit on TV. Uh-huh. So that is a look into even without the Shirley Jackson branding, it could have done something. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Could have been interesting. I definitely am going to watch Rose Red soon after this whole discussion. Same. Because I'm interested to see the pieces. I want to actually watch it all the way through. I kind of want to now like yeah. have us cover it for our Patreon after uh, Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> yeah. It, well, apparently it's like a stepsister to this, yeah. <laughs> to the whole franchise. So yeah. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Shelby. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. You want to plug your show and your socials and where people can find yeah. everything? Yeah. What have you got going on right now? Oh, yeah. I have a show. My show is Scary to Sleep, but I also have a different show called Historic Hangouts that I do with my husband, who has been on this show. Yes. James Scott. Yep. And we talk about places where historically people hung out, just cool, awesome people and like bars, hotels. We cover a lot of sometimes like haunted stuff, just wild stories from these places that people historically hung out. Yeah. And I also have a scary show called Scary to Sleep. So check those out. Hell yeah. I also appreciate a lot of times at the end of your Scary to Sleeps, you talk about what you've been baking and share recipes, which is also nice as a stay at home. (laughs) And I'm, I'm getting better at cooking. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Listeners, if you are looking for really solid audio fictional horror content scary sleep is the best in the business in my opinion yeah it's good shit thank you so go check that out otherwise uh aaron do you want to take us out with all our stuff yeah so like i mentioned we are watch if you dare if you're listening and you still don't know who we are at this point (laughs) but yeah you can find us on social media at watch if you dare that's facebook and twitter twitter it's twitter it's It's Twitter. twitter Yeah, it's, I call it's it Twitter. Twitter. Still. Yeah. yeah, he can go fuck himself. It's Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> you can download this episode, past episode, future episodes on whatever podcatcher you use. We're on all of them at this point. As we mentioned earlier, we have a Patreon. Please check that out. Five bucks a month. We have a lot of bonus content on there for you, including all the extra Haunting of Hill House stuff that we've mentioned in this episode. We have a whole episode where we talk about the original novel and Shirley Jackson herself and covering the Netflix miniseries by Mike Flanagan. All that is there to tie into all this. Check it out. Less than a cup of coffee a month. You have all that bonus shit, and it helps support the show. And it helps yeah. us keep this going and ad-free and on every podcatcher. So we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you to all of our current patrons. We love you guys. Thank you for the support. Again, patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Watch if you dare. Yep. Easy as that. We also have our Spotify music playlist. Just spoopy shit that we love, either from regular music artists or it's stuff from movie scores. That can be found on our Facebook as well. Well, I just added a couple tracks to that, by the way. I've been going through the new season of what we do in the shadows, and they always play like great music at the very end of each episode. And the music usually is tied somehow to the episodes theme and there were two or three songs from this past season that i had to add to our playlist so i added them hell yeah speaking of music big thanks to my little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for the music bumps the beginning and ends of all of our episodes you can find more of his stuff on Bandcamp under party gator opossums big clown 
He's got all kinds of side projects. Check his music out. Throw him a couple of bucks. He's been popping up in uh, festivals and shit a lot more recently, too, and opening for some pretty well-known bands. Good on him. So, yeah, if you're in the Memphis area, definitely keep your eyes and ears peeled. They are going around right now doing some cool shit. So, yeah, that's all on Bandcamp. And then, yeah, other than that, fuck it. I guess we need to grab the keys. Get in the car, get the fuck out of this haunted house that we've been stuck in for the last few weeks. Bruce Dern is here. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah. he's here to (laughs) unlock the gates so we can get the fuck away from this house full of haunted Sally. I don't fucking know. We don't have an ending for this one. (laughs) We burn this Sally house down to the ground and salt the earth or whatever (laughs) they say in every single adaptation. Yeah, whatever walks there walks alone, I guess, by Sally. All right, cool, cool. Bye. Later. Bye.